Alrighty, g'day dudes and dudettes. Um, welcome to the Origin Canine Podcast. Uh, today I've got a super cool guest on, um, a guy that I've been looking to get on for a few weeks now. Um, so we've got Rick Hogg from Hogg Tactical, another American guest. Um, Rick spent over 29 years in the US military and in the USASOC specifically. Um, and as we go along, you'll start to figure out um, you know, the sort of things that Rick has done and the places he's been. So Mate, let's get amongst it. Welcome, Rick. Hey, thank you, Brody. Uh, you know, I appreciate you having me on. I, I would have liked to have been, hey, man, I've been trying to get him on for years. You know, it would have added more juice, but hey, I'll go with a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was thinking about this, but even before I had the podcast. <laughs> yeah, he was like my first. I built the podcast around this guy, so. Yeah, yeah. finally. <laughs> no, dude. Mate, and, actually- and- yeah, go, go ahead. No, I, I was just saying, here's the deal. Um, we got to get you on ours as well. So I've got on the range podcast. We need to get you on as a guest sometime as well. So we just got to figure out our timing since we're on opposite sides of the world. So, yeah, dude, you're because you're North Carolina. Um, and mm-hmm. I was looking at the, <clears throat> excuse me, the time differences. And because I'm such a fucking maths monkey, I couldn't. I just couldn't work it out. I was like asking my missus and I was Googling and I was on these different sites going like, but when it's this time, like I'm, I know the amount of hours difference, but how do I work that out mm-hmm. for when it's Wednesday and yours Tuesday, <laughs> uh, mate? Anyway. Technically, it like, technically, it's Tuesday. I think you had mentioned Wednesday, but today is actually Tuesday here in the States. But it's all good, mate. All good. Yeah. Uh, wait, Wednesday morning here, 6, 6.39, so... <laughs> Jeez, that's. I guess I could better get used to that because that's the life, bro. Hey, man, it's all good. Alrighty, dude, mate. So I know, like pre press and record, you said you're not into the chronological stuff because your brain doesn't work that way. So, um, I, I do want to ask you, about. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying I can give you some chronological stuff, just depending where we go with stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, it's all good, mate. I'm not too tied up in dates or anything, dude. Mm-hmm. So, mate, hit us with um, hit us with growing up. Like, what was childhood like, and then how that shaped you then joining the military? Yeah, so I grew up in uh, New Hampshire, which is in the northeast of the U.S. So, up in New England. Um, here's the thing, you know, good childhood growing up. I'm going to say, really, um, what kind of shaped me for the military? If you look at my grandfather, was a World War II vet. My dad was a Vietnam vet. So service had always been in the family. Um, I knew at an early age, specifically, I wanted to go into special forces. And whether it was watching John Wayne, the Green Berets, or uh, old Sylvester Stallone, Rambo, you know. But although I saw Rambo, I think when I was like 15 or 16, you know, so I was older then. So I was already kind of committed to that path. Um, Long story short, at least for the U.S. military, um, in 86, what we dubbed the SF baby program. So you could basically go from off the street, uh, go to a recruiter and go straight into special forces. That was still there. Uh, when I was eligible to do the, the delayed entry program in 87, special forces had swapped over to a branch and that was no longer an option. So the best choice I could get was, Hey man, we'll give you airborne infantry, no bonus. And yeah. Now there's one thing I have to premise all this with looking back at life. I think what gave me a lot of success in the military was actually my wrestling in high school. So I'd wrestled beforehand, but kind of going to um, wrestling high school, is kind of like stepping up to the big leagues. What I didn't realize 
here I am, you know, freshman. Um, and for like the first two or three weeks, coach is just, he's smoking us, man. You know, it is an absolute just PT fest. And what he's doing is just a mini selection because guys would sit there and, and fall off. So first day, you know, you show up the next day, guys are gone or guys go, Oh, I got to get a drink of water. Never come back, whatever. So in essence, for the next four years, here I am just basically doing the grind, um, getting a beasting every day to go. Yeah, dude. So now when you join the military, it's like, all right, cool. At least I'm eating, right? I'm not sitting there starving, trying to cut weight and do all this other stupid stuff. So looking back, that was one of those I didn't realize then, but I realize now. So something I try to pass on, you know, to kids growing up, do sports, do things that are hard, make things, make yourself uncomfortable because that way it's going to give you, you know, more wheels later on in life so that now when hard things do pop up, they're not, it doesn't seem that hard to you because yeah, I've already kind of done it. Granted, it's just a different format, um, with that. So, um, 1988, graduate high school. 10 days later, I report down to Fort Benning, Georgia for one station unit training, um, to do airborne in my infantry training down there. Uh, once I get done there, I report up to Fort Bragg, North Carolina to 82nd airborne division where I'm assigned to the first battalion, 505th parachute infantry regiment. Um, and yeah, pretty much stay at Fort Bragg for the next 29 years. Alrighty, bro, mate. Um, uh, yeah. let's backtrack a little bit to high school sure. and your your wrestling career. So that's not mm-hmm. like a massive sport here in Australia, but it seems to be you, you guys are quite keen on that wrestling sort of thing. And that's that's you know you've got those little earmuff things on, and, mm-hmm. and you've got those tight sort of leotard looking things on. Um, single it, um, headgear, headgear and singlet, right? We'll we'll call it. It's not a leotard; yeah. it's a singlet. But I was yeah. going to say, there's probably a better word than leotard. It's, yeah, no, you're I'm good. I got you. So yeah, it's not uh, it's not ballet. Even is is a leotard from ballet? I don't know. Um, okay, so yeah, you're you're right into your wrestling. Were you like mm-hmm. competitive, or is high school wrestling like one of those novelty kind of things? No, it it, it it's competitive. Yeah. So, um, I know at least for a fact. And again, I'm blowing the dust off. One guy I knew that was on the team with me, he got a full scholarship um, to college off of wrestling. You know, so I mean, it's it's one of those sports where, yeah, you know, you can get a ride to school. Um, here's the thing, right? The thing with wrestling is it's an individual sport. Yes, it's a team event, if you want to say. Dude, when you're out there in the mat sucking, it's just you. So it's not like rugby where you got your, you know, your teammates out on the field with you. Dude, if you're getting your butt kicked, then you just don't have the skill against that guy. And the thing is you got to look at when you look at a guy that's got my stature, okay, he's a little bit easier to wrestle than this big old beanpole dude that now you're trying to wrap up arms and legs and you can't even get to that stuff. So you're dealing with all kinds of different body mechanics along the way. Um, And you got to sit there and go, you're constantly training to go, I don't know who this guy is. Now, granted, freshman year, really, yeah, really didn't know who the competition was. You know, you're still figuring all that out. But as you start progressing, you start knowing who the players are and you start putting your marks on people going, all right, dude, you know, you start actually 
checking out other people and what they're doing and what their moves are. And okay, cool. You know, he's a single leg master. All right, cool. How do I defeat the single leg? You know, or whatever it is you're going to do. So you start building for certain competitors you have, but I, I don't care if you're playing rugby or what you're doing. As long as you're out there on the pitch doing something, that's the key part, right? Get out there, get out there, exercise and figure out how do you make yourself better? So our little mantra here at Warhawk Tactical is be 1% better every day. But what does that 1% consist of? Dude, that's on you, right? But it it even goes down to our kids. Are you pushing your kids to be that 1% better? Cool, man. You know, you ran, you know, this distance at this time. Cool. How do you trim off? Do you think about it? If I just trim off a second, if I trim off a second this week for a short distance race, a second the next week, a second, I mean, pretty soon, man, I'm trimming time and I'm the top dog. So you can apply it to all aspects. And I mean, adults as well. What are you doing to be 1% better every day? And you don't realize it because wrestling is one of those sports where looking back at it, it's probably not the healthiest thing to be honest with you. So yeah, we would got the little headgear, you know, to prevent the, the cauliflower ear, but I don't think starving yourself and dehydrating yourself uh, growing up is probably the best and then binge eat, right? So you, you pretty much make sure you make weight. Cool. And I've got this huge brown bag just packed with chow. And as soon as I step on that scale, I said, yep, you made your weight. What am I doing? Sucking all this crap in, drinking all this water because my body's all dehydrated, malnourished because I'm sitting there basically trying to cut weight so I can stay at the lowest weight I can. Um, probably not the best thing for you. But we seem to shake out all right. But um, yeah, it's just about having that hardness early on in life that will just make the rest of your life easier, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I like that, mate. And um, so I, I do this, and this is probably a, a similar comparison, but not a sport one necessarily. I do this business coaching course at the moment, right? And and there's a large component of this course where you play games. So you, mm-hmm. there's a board game and there's these little exercises where you build bikes and things. And the premise is that how you play games is then how you act in life. So the same would go with sport, right? Like the way you attack sport, your mentality, the way you learn, the way you incrementally defeat an opponent, that's then the way that you apply that to your life. It's almost like that jujitsu thing that Choco is always talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I like it, yeah, jujitsu. I mean, it, it doesn't matter what sport, jujitsu, boxing, where the difference rolls in with all of those, those are all individual sports. When you step into the ring, you step on the mat, or you do whatever with that individual, you don't know what they've got. Did you bring it? So when you're working as a team, hopefully the team knows what your strengths and weaknesses are and can basically support that to make up. So I don't need everyone to be the best at everything on a team sport, but as an individual, you better be pretty close to the top there because if somebody pulls something out, it's like, Hey man, that might be what gets you. And I would just say, I'm totally with you on, on doing games and stuff like that. But like, when you look at the business side, you know, business is one of those, how can I be as efficient and trim the fat? You know, do I want to sit there and have perfection? I do. But man, trying to run your own business, how can I be as efficient to get this thing knocked out? So is it the same? It's similar, but you just look to where to cut the fat. If you try to cut corners 
in some of your sports aspects, that might be the difference between winning and losing. You know, so it, it's a little different. I, I totally get what you're saying, and I'm 100% there, but there's times we do, if you want to say cheat or trim corners just to be just to be more efficient. Hey, man, let me get some more time in the day to do whatever else I'm doing. Yeah. So, mate, when it comes to like your, your high school and then going basically straight to the military, mm-hmm. and, and I know that college is a massive thing for you, for you, like in the States, and it's just totally not a massive thing here going to college. You know, a lot of people go and get trades and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, was the military the thing that made you decide not to go to college or you just never had any interest in that in the first place? No, I didn't have any interest in college. Um, I knew probably at 13 I was going to go into the military. So I knew early on that that was my route. Um, would I have wanted to go to college? I, I don't know what I would have done, to be honest with you. I mean, the military was my focus. So could I have gone to school for four years and just burnt some time and got an education in something? Yeah. But here's the bottom line. College, man, it's a scam. College is all <laughs> about making it. Dude, it, it is, right? It's about making money. You sit there and go, uh, like when me and my wife got married, she had her college degree. Dude, inherited thousands of dollars in debt that took us years to pay off, right? What a way to start your life. Get some higher education in the hole. And I would just tell people, I, I'm not a fan of it. Yeah, like you said, go get you a trade. Go get you some experience. Go be an apprentice somewhere. Learn that way. And then later on in life, you opt to be an entrepreneur because I would tell everybody, go be an entrepreneur because that's the best place to be. It's your boss, your world. Um, You're going to control your fate. But yeah, college, at least here in the States, scam. Yeah, and that's like not to speak too much about the the American sort of system, but I'm probably the same as you, man. I just, I, I see that narrative that people, you know, it's probably a social media thing that we get fed in Australia, but I see that narrative like, you know, oh, I'm mm-hmm. going to finish high school, then I'll go to college, then I'll get a good job, then I'll work my way up the corporate ladder. And, mate, there's nothing more unappealing to me than doing regular people stuff. Like, that's so yeah. fucking boring to me. And then, yeah, you're right. The degree, it could be like an arts degree. And I mean, you know, that's probably an interesting thing to do. But really, is anyone out there going, we need an arts student right now? <laughs> yeah. It, well, it, there is one caveat I'll put in there, right? So you bring up the arts thing. And, and, and it's kind of a, it's a segue in, um, especially to my, you know, veterans, military, law enforcement, you know, that's getting ready to get out. Dude, if that's your passion is art, go chase it. Chase it for all it's worth. Right now, would that want to be my job that I rely to make money for my family with? Probably not. At least not for me. It's not my passion. For somebody, it might be. Could in that essence, could school maybe hone your craft? Maybe. I, I don't know where else you go to get art school or, or become a better artist. Um, so in that aspect, it might have a play, but at what cost? Or would you be better off trying to find an artist and go, hey, dude, what can I do around your shop to be like an apprentice to learn from you? I mean, just throwing different things out there. Don't always get caught in, hey, this is the way you've got to do business. And you bring up a great point. The magic boxes, man, they're pumping us with propaganda. They're just a propaganda box. So let's think about it. We've seen it here in the States where between Twitter and Facebook, 
the federal government has told them what to put out or what to suppress. You don't think that's going on in Australia? Come on, man. 100% it is. It's going on all over, right? Think about it. You do a search for something. Next thing you know, you got Google ads popping up. So all this AI that's out there, it's all subliminal. And I don't know how things are over there in Australia, but over here, it's horrible, man. The crap they're pumping into our next generation, twisting their minds. And even our military. I'll throw that one under the bus, right? U.S. military, man, they are woke. Woke as can be. God forbid I go, hey, guys, I find that offensive. Shut your mouth. You know, (laughs) used to be a day that you go fist to cuffs with guys, right? You got a Joe, you need to sit there and tune up. You tune them up. You know, in this day and age, oh my God. I mean, it's getting so bad that they want to sit there and change the name of Fort Bragg because they find that, that Braxton Bragg is offensive because he was a Confederate general. Yes, he was. He was also a U.S. Uh, officer as well, but they seem to forget that part. So they want to twist history. So, yeah. yeah. And no Side one's bar- in history, mate. You look back far enough, mate. You know, it's not like we've got where it's marching into Italy going that we, you know, demand that you Romans apologize to the French or to the, to the it, British. It, it's ridiculous, mate. I mean, at the end of the day, it is, right? Let's live today for today. How do we get the best out of today? How do we maximize today? But no, we want to sit there and, and stir crap that doesn't matter. So, yeah. Side, sidebar well, tangent on that one. No, no, it's good, mate. This is this is, <laughs> this is the good oil, and and well, I want to touch on that again later on because that's that's probably a good theme. You know, it's you know, don't concentrate so much on the past. Mm-hmm. Be be now focused to have presence, and then be future focused for for goals one, and achieving. So, one hundred percent. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm just checking my own coffee over here. Um. All right, man. So, um, I'm keeping with this tr- chronological theme. Mm-hmm. Um. So I don't I don't chase my own butterflies. Um, nope, so you've okay. done, you've done high school. You've you've done the rest. Did you maintain the wrestling later on through your military career? No, um, because it just wasn't. There's really, you would kind of roll with guys, but there's nothing really down here at Bragg um, that I recollect. Plus, I mean, as a young Joe, you're trying to figure out that piece in itself, and then okay, hey, you're away from the house. Uh, you're getting your indoc that you're your heart is woodpecker lips, right? You can do anything you want. You know, and you're probably out, let's just say, maybe slightly doing some other things uh, to experience life. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, good, mate. Yeah, nice. Yeah. Um, I love all your colloquially, uh, sorry, your um, all your slang that we're not used to mm-hmm. here, hard as woodpecker lips. <laughs> yeah. But that's what, you know, so as, as a young paratrooper, they would pump that in your head. Your heart is woodpecker lips, you know, just to go, just to drive that point home. You know, so there was all that um, camaraderie, esprit de corps for paratroopers, man. Everyone else, pff, trash. Yeah, they indoct you good, or at least they used to. Um, this day and age, I don't know what they're doing. But yeah, back then, 100%. You know, you ask some of yeah. the kids today, what makes the blood or what makes the uh, grass grow? And they go, huh? Water? <laughs> no, dude. It's blood. <laughs> yeah, it's just, uh, just different time. That's all. Yeah, no, yeah, fair enough, mate. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, dude. So, t- well, tell me more about the about the airborne, dude. Like, what's the lifestyle like? How often are you jumping? Exercises, deployments, anything? Um, I, I mean, jumps. 
back then, I mean, we jumped quite a bit. Um, it was typically things were good up until around uh, September timeframe because October was our fiscal year. So I can remember them um, going, yeah, hey, you guys got to gotta jump tonight. Um, good news is we're jumping Sicily drop zone, which was our closest drop zone to the barracks. Uh, bad news is there's no trucks. So cool. They'd go kick you out for proficiency jump. Now you got to go pump it back in. Like, all right, whatever. Um, you know, we did some, some stateside, um, deployments, you know, went out to like the national training center, um, did some other things, but in 1990, uh, the first Gulf war kicked off. So operation desert shield, desert storm, uh, we were actually out in the field during that time. And next thing you know, it's like, Hey, pack up your crap and we're going back in and we're like going in early, aren't we? And then, yeah, we started the whole reddish deployment cycle. Um, flashed a bang, I think from when we kind of got pulled probably within five days, I was on a, uh, C5 heading over to, to Saudi Arabia. Um, well, we were up above. Yeah. So on a C5, you've got seating up above. And then, uh, in the 82nd, we had these little Sheridan tanks. So they had a short barrel on them cause they were jumpable. They could basically push them out of aircraft. Um, I think we had like six Sheridan tanks down below and, you know, probably 80, 90 dudes up top. And it's like, all right, here you go. Um, land, nothing. The first Gulf war was nothing like the GWAT as far as logistics in place. Um, you know, there was no PX set up, no nothing. Basically it's like, Hey, get off the, uh, get off the bird. I forget if it was, I don't know how we got, um, over to where we were staying at. Basically we were just staying in a big, um, motor pool garage, you know, so we're actually on a, in, you know, in a building. It's like, Hey, the size of your sleeping mat, that was about the spot you had. And it's like, all right, there you go. Uh, don't eat your MREs cause those are for war and we don't know when we're going. Uh, so they would truck us in like nasty Hardy's hamburgers that God knows how long it took them to get in like a can of Pepsi. Oh yeah. <laughs> it was just horrible conditions, man. Absolutely horrible. But you sit there and grow from it. And as you sit there and, and are there longer and longer, we start building, you know, obviously more and more infrastructure. Um, we moved from there up to like the, uh, up to the Iraqi border. Um, think around the first of the year, if I remember right, you know, obviously desert storm kicks off. So the air war kicks off. Um, remember, you know, beef twos flying over, about 15, 20 minutes later, they dropped their payload. And I don't know how far a B-52 gets in 15 or 20 minutes, but you could feel the overpressure from the bombs they were dropping that far away. And you're like, man, it's a bad day for somebody. Yeah, um, sure. yeah dude. You know, February kicks off. Um, 82nd was taking the far western flank of Iraq. So we get up to the uh, Talil airfield, and that was our objective up there. And then pretty much minimal resistance up there because all those guys were just – Dude, they had just bombed the piss out of them. Um, got done that, go blow some stuff up, because that was like the next mission was just deny the enemy any type of equipment. Um, and then circle back. Was it April 1st, 1991? Bam. Back home to the States. So, yeah. Mate, just rewind a, a little bit. Um Sure. So, so that lead up part where you were sitting out in the desert in these large motor pools, um, mm-hmm. and, I, and the only comparison I've got is Jarhead. Um, mm-hmm. 
the movie Jake Gyllenhaal. Yep. Um, what, what was that like sitting there waiting to go on your first operation in the border, here in the planes and the bombs and all sorts of stuff? Man, it, I mean, you just kind of – let's think about it. You join the military because you want to see what you've got. You want to go, if you want to say, test yourself. You know, you want that engagement with the enemy. Um, the thing was, Desert Storm was an interesting conflict. Because, again, as we went from kind of the rear cantonment area closer up to Iraq, um, you got to think at that time, you know, Saddam had set the oil well fires. So, in essence, what little night vision we did have didn't work. Um, because... Um, all that oil smoke, man, was just suppressing everything. So I can remember, you know, you'd have your nods trying to look around the perimeter and it's like, you can't even see the perimeter. So you're trying to put out IR chem lights just to go, Hey, this is kind of where we're at. Um, but it was just crazy, crazy dark because of that. Um, our DC uniforms all kind of went from the brown to black just cause you get all that soot. And the thing was when we got up there, there really wasn't much of a fight because these guys had been beaten. I mean, would we bomb them for like 30 days prior? So all these gunfights and everything else you expect to get into really wasn't, it wasn't there. It was minimal at best. So you kind of, I don't want to say get cheated, but it wasn't like the GWAT. You know, it wasn't like you were constantly um, in combat going, you know, all the time. You had, I think, four days of quote-unquote declared combat. And then after that, you know, ceasefire was done and and there. So it's like, okay, you know, kind of cheated a little bit, I guess. It's like, all right, yeah, you throw some bullets back and forth, but it's not not the visions that you have, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I had a very similar experience in my first deployment. Um, so when you say minimal resistance, do you mean like – couple of shots fly overhead maybe you shoot it yeah the building sort of thing or yeah so as as we so what we did um basically big air assault up towards uh tilly airfield um there was like a big berm you know kind of right by the highway kind of get ready to cross that thing you know you had a couple chuckle nuts decide to shoot you know, but it wasn't like any type of real engagement, right? Part of these dudes going, all right, let me just throw something there and probably chuck their guns and bolted, right? It w- wasn't, it, there just wasn't the, the, the combat like we had during the GWAT. And, and literally, I think the guys down towards Kuwait, you know, I think they probably saw more than what we did on the Western side. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So once um, once you're in Iraq and it all sort of settled down and you're around that, so April 91, you started heading back to the States. Mm-hmm. Yep. So how long was your whole deployment? I uh, got there in August of 90 to April 1st. So Shit, was that nine about? months or something? Months, nine months, yeah. Yeah. I'll say I can't do math. <laughs> yeah, because it was all – you got to think, when we got there – when we got there in August, um, we went close up to the border. So the classic, hey, we drew the line in the sand. Yeah, we had the line in the sand 
uh, up by this desalinization point that was going to be, hey, man, this is our this is where we're going to hold them. Right. So the intent being is, hey, if, if the Iraqis did come down uh, into Saudi Arabia, we're basically going to use tow missiles, the predecessor uh, javelins, the newest thing, which is a lot better. Trust me. But uh, we were or not toes, but um, dragons. We're going to be used between dragons and uh, and toes to basically knock out the lead tanks, which would then force them to go to the softer dirt and then try to pick them off that way. So that was, that was a great game plan. I said, all right, sounds like a plan. So yeah, don't eat your MREs. <laughs> you might need them. So, but yeah, it's funny, mate, because as you know now, like that was never going to happen, mate. Never. <laughs> no, no. And if it did, it would have been over in five fucking minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Okay. So you're back from your first deployment. Um, are you on a bit of a high or are you sort of like, oh, yeah, okay, I guess that's what war's like? Yeah. I mean, you, you got a bit of a high. Why? Because you're back in the States, man. Everything mm. that, it, you know, you got to think we had nothing. You know, living out of a rucksack for the last nine months, minimal crap. You might get a care package here and there from back home. Uh, yeah, it was nice to be back, man. Um, you know, get some good chow, sit there and, and just relax and, and appreciate, keyword being appreciate, being back home and appreciate the states. Wow, actually having a toilet to use. That's a novel concept. I haven't seen one of those in a while. Ooh, a hot shower. I think I went 77 days, I think. My memory serves me right without taking a shower. Yeah, man. Just all the all the luxuries of life. Yeah, it was great. Um, short-lived though, right? Because I get back in uh, April and then I think um, May or June, I bolt off to ranger school because it they pretty much put out, you know, we went on leave, come back. Hey, anybody want to go to ranger school? And it, it, that was one of the things I wanted to do, kind of kicking the can around, but they were like, hey, um, no pre-ranger. <laughs> I'm like, sign this guy up. No suffering before the suffering. Yeah, I'll go. So literally, you know, back in back in uh, April, come back May or June. I know I was there in June because I turned 21 doing a road march down there, you know, and then um, get done ranger school. Um you know, a couple months later there. So, yeah. What's what's the pre-ranger thing? Is that like a pre-selection thing? or it, It's pretty much, that's what it is. So there's really not a whole bunch of teaching that goes on. It's a suck fest just to make sure guys don't quit because ranger school has a high attrition rate where guys will just quit. Yep. You know, conditions are, you know, again, just pushing yourself, being sleep deprived, um, being food deprived, and guys will just say, hey, this isn't for me. So that's really the whole premise of the pre-ranger is just, again, more harassment. It's like, dude, I'm not going to quit this thing. I'm not, you know, for me personally, I'm not worried about that. So I said, why do I have to sit there and go through was it two or three weeks of being abused uh, just to go down to school? So, yeah, I was like, Phew. because you got to think, man, when everyone was pretty much gone for desert storm everything was pretty much shut down um i think basic and stuff like that was probably still going i don't know if everyone's school or any of that other stuff but obviously ranger school was still going i believe um but the pre-ranger program was run at the unit level so the 82nd all those guys that were did pre-ranger were infantrymen 
they sent them back to their units and deployed them. So all the internal stuff was, it wasn't there. So it's like, hey, let's capitalize on um, on that opportunity. Yeah, that's good, man. I'm glad you jumped at it too. Um, oh, yeah. So what was... So was Rangers, was that a lateral step for you? Was that like in the mind of a 21-year-old soldier? Is that a step up from airborne? Step step up. Yeah. Okay. So being Ranger qualified. So <clears throat> you have to understand with the U.S. Army, the term Ranger gets intermingled. All right. So you have those that are Ranger qualified, which I am. And then you have those individuals that have the title of Ranger, i.e. they serve for the 75th Ranger Regiment. Okay. Yeah. So what happens is when you're Ranger qualified, you get a Ranger tab to place on your uniform. If you're in Ranger Battalion, you basically have a scroll. Now, granted, they can be Ranger qualified in Ranger Battalion. So it's just, it, it, it's a weird dynamic um in the U.S. Army, but anyone, anyone in the mil or in the U.S. military, actually, we've had some foreigners go to to Ranger School, um, so it's like anyone can go. But it's being a young specialist at the time, Ranger qualified, and you've got, um, you know, non commissioned officers and, and commissioned officers that aren't, dude. It, it's kind of a big deal. So yeah. Your chest sticks out that much further a little more because you got this little piece piece of cloth on your shoulder. And it's like, yeah, dude. Um so yeah, it it it's definitely um it's definitely one of those that it's a move up, it's not a lateral. You know, and there's there's yeah. other things in there, and we'll backtrack. Um so there's other things that happen prior to to Desert Storm, if you want to say that gives you that little bumper boost. So um, as an infantryman, one of the badges we can earn is the expert infantryman's badge. So it's just a series of tests that you go through to earn this. Um, when I earned mine as a young private first class, out of my brigade size element, I believe there was only nine of us that earned our EIB that year. So again, that was kind of a, you know, again, another big deal as a young man coming up to the ranks. So you've got, again, whether it's a badge. See, the Army does good brainwashing you at that point, right? So I've got this little badge, this little piece of cloth to put on my uniform that, hey, look at me. I'm somehow doing something great. Yep. Harder than woodpecker lips. So your woodpecker lips are hard, but mine are even harder because I've got this thing and I've got that thing. And yeah. So it's, uh, they do good brainwashing on that stuff to kind of drive that. Did I really need that stuff to to boost me up? No, they they were great experiences, right? It wasn't the piece of cloth. Um, although for a young man, it's like, hey, as you're moving through the military, yeah, it's you show stuff off. So, like when we all came back from Desert Storm, you know, we earned the combat infantryman's badge. Did I wear my CIB on my dress uniform? Yes, but like on um, on my BDUs, I'd wear my EIB. Why? Because all you cats got a CIB, right? But I got an EIB. So it was just, I, I do things like that just to go, hey man, that was just me and the way I was rolling. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but There's nothing wrong with a bit of that too, mate. Like a little bit, a bit of pride, throw a bit of ego in there. It's, it's, it's one of those it, things, mate, that can drive you and yeah, I like it. 
Yeah. When, when I was, when I was younger, yeah, 100%, you know, it was a, a, a bump to your ego. Did I really need it? Uh, no. I mean, as a self-confident dude, but yeah, it's like you would see, So, like when you salute your fellow officers or not your fellow, but when you salute officers, uh, at least in the 82nd, the greeting was all the way, uh, or airborne all the way. And they said all the way, I think it was, dude, when I got Ranger qualified, it was Rangers lead the way. Especially when I saw guys like, oh, that officer's not tabbed. Bam. It just, and again, it was just little jabs, right? Because again, you're living in this aura that they kind of built. And it's like, yeah, I'll I'll capitalize on that. So. Yeah. Because, <laughs> yeah, I always wondered about that, mate. Like what the, the tabs versus the, the posted guys. And, and I always wondered what that little, um, the, the scroll was underneath at the very bottom. The, but now that's interesting to know that. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You guys definitely got some funny ways of doing business. You know, in, in Australia, we're very uh, <clears throat> like siloed, so to speak. Like mm-hmm. you're posted to this unit. This is the uniform yep. you wear. Mm-hmm. Um, there's small variations, like you know, if you've have the sandy beret or the green beret, mm-hmm. and then you get posted to support staff, you still have the black backing and mm-hmm. say that you've done selection. And yeah, but uh, yeah, you guys seem to do it a little bit differently. Um, so, so uh, mate, tell uh, me. Yeah, go similar. Go no, I'm just saying it, it's similar. Um, and history's kind of played some things with that. We'll get into here um, later on. We talk about berets and all this other stuff, but yeah. So yeah, we'll touch on that. So one. obviously for for the context, for some people listening and maybe even yourself, mm-hmm. as a ranger, right, you've got the Sandy Beret. Well, they used to have the Black Beret. All right. So yep. if you really want to rewind the tape, what the Army did – was they took away the Rangers' black beret, um, I believe, in the 90s and gave them the tan beret or the sandy, you know, beret and gave the rest of the Army the black berets. Um, paratroopers always had maroon berets and then obviously Special Forces had green berets. And even, so it used to be, you got to think, and we'll fast forward to the, the green beret part here from Sporan Berets, um, in the sixties, when John F. Kennedy basically authorized the green beret for use, it was for those that were special forces qualified. And again, the nineties were a weird time because we went from having the green beret as a market distinction for the individual to now it's going to become this organizational headgear. So you would go to special forces groups and you'd look around and all the cats wearing their green berets didn't have a special forces tab. So, because we all pretty much said, I ain't wearing that thing. If you're going to give it to everybody, let them have it. I'm just going to wear my little patrol cap and go about my business. And it was our way that we were telling them, this is supposed to be something for us. It's not an organizational headgear. This is our distinction looking at our lineage in history. By JFK, who, oh, by the way, was assassinated today in 1963. Just looking at your little bit of history there for... Yeah, there you go. well, for you guys, well, for us, it's the 22nd. I think it's the 23rd for you guys. 23rd, um, yeah. Yeah, but the 22nd of November, 1963, uh, JFK was assassinated, and JFK was the proponent for Special Forces. Uh, he's the one that pushed or allowed us to wear our green berets because that was kind of a – it was not an organizational headgear back in the day, and the guys kind of did it. They pressed the waters, and Kennedy liked it, and yeah. The rest is history. 
But again, people try to mess with history. It was a, as Kennedy dubbed it, uh, a mark of excellence. You know, I think he said a badge of courage, if I remember right. But you can't just give it to everybody. And that's the thing. When you start taking people's stuff, the boys who are qualified to wear it, boycott. I refuse to wear that thing. You got to wear your beret. Nope. Not doing it. Take theirs away. And eventually it came around, you know, where then they went to, okay, since they were in an airborne unit, they gave them the maroon beret. So you saw that shift back, but it was because the guys were like, no, this is crap, man. We earned this thing. They just get, you know, had it given to them. We're not going to wear it. So yeah, where's all my, where's all my green berets at? (laughs) So I was a green beret, right? So um, we don't call Mm -hmm. it that here, but. I was a Green Beret, and the only way you can get that is by doing the selection course, doing the reinforcement mm-hmm. cycle, and then being posted to the unit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you leave the unit, you, you no longer wear the Green Beret. So, um, yeah, it's strange to hear that, that there were guys in the unit wearing the Green Beret with no special forces tab that weren't special uh, special forces qualified soldier. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a funny little mix, mate, the way you guys sort of do some of that. It's particularly that – 90s period that you're describing it sounds a bit funky man there there was some funk in there and it happened a little bit um talking to some of the other guys it it had happened before where they tried to do the same thing but that didn't work either because they tried giving everyone the green beret but then they put their flash was a little bit and that's just the um, the color backer in the front that tells what group you're assigned to. They started messing with that. And again, we've gone through our, our trials and tribulations um, with that, but yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was also in the airborne. I was never airborne qualified because we lost the, mm-hmm. the role back then, but um, yeah, they did the same thing, mate. They took the, took the Maroon Beret away and took the wings away and all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, funky stuff, bro. Um, yeah. Mate, so tell me, um, so you're in the in the Ranger Battalion. Um, nope, do you then? 82nd. Oh, sorry, 82nd Ranger qualified. Yep. Ranger qualified. Um, what's the What's the next major event for you in your military career, dude? So here's the thing: the 82nd is a good place to grow up. It's not a place that I wanted to stay because I knew I wanted to go to Special Forces anyway, right? So we had some things happen along the way. Um, you know, I'd missed out on on Panama. That's a whole nother story there. Basically, we got sent away for Christmas leave when that all went down. So that wasn't very cool. Um, did Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Uh, so you had your touch of combat, you know, got Ranger qualified. And then, hey, man, it's time to go to SFAS or Special Force Assessment and Selection. Um, one thing, our SFAS program was relatively new at that time. And guys had actually gone over to Australia and used the they had kind of pulled from what the uh, SASR was doing to kind of develop that program. So, um, I think it was around June '92. So it wasn't short. You know, it wasn't there long after Ranger School. Um, got my slot to uh, SFAS, completed that. But then the problem was I had to wait a year to go to the Q course or the qualification course. So I go back to the 82nd, basically in purgatory for a year. So when I go back there, um, the order of merit lists, which we had up in our company area, I knew exactly where I was at for upcoming schools because there was a black mark. It basically crossed my name off of everything. Uh, 
it went to, oh yeah, dude, th- this is how vindictive the 82nd is, right? Well, it's like, you're a ship jumper, dude. I'm not leaving the army, right? I'm still staying in the army. I'm just looking to better myself. Oh, you want to leave, you want to leave the division. You're no good. It's like, okay. Um, so you're not this getting is how any much- special courses, no promotions. No. Well, promotions, just- they can't, they can't stop, right? The promotion piece, oh. they can't stop that, but they can, they can stop your schools. They can stop your schools to the extent where I was the only guy in my battalion that had my jump master pre-card. So you had to do this pre-test prior to going to jump master school to make sure, hey, you could rig your stuff in time and, and new nomenclature. I was the only guy. I'm like, cool, man. I'll at least go to jump master. Nope, we're not going to send you. I'm like, you've got nobody else that has their their pre-test. Nope. I said, I'm not leaving the army. No, we're not, would rather... Not you have it and, and just let it rot, then let you take it. Oh, yeah. This is how spiteful these people are. So, yeah, that was my my year there. Um, happy to, trust me, happy to leave. Um, you know, get done the Q course, get assigned over to um, 7 Special Forces Group, whose area of operation was Central and South America. That's what I wanted. Uh, I'd kind of set myself up for a little bit of success beforehand, took a uh, Spanish defense language proficiency test. So I at least had a Spanish rating, um, went back. They sent me to Portuguese school because that was a, a new thing going. And then, yeah, went over to uh, over to some special forces group and started that. What am I at? 94 ish, maybe, I think my years are right. So, yeah, interesting, man. Yeah. And what's the what's the tempo, mate? Like, what's the tempo like for? In my mind, there's no operations going on then, for at least from what I can gather. Um, what's mm-hmm. the tempo like for a special forces unit with a, a lack of operations in the mid '90s in that peace period? So, it was an interesting time for us because you have to think, Central and South America, um. El Salvador was still going on. Well, it wasn't going on at that point. It, it dwindled down by then, right? But we had guys that had been, um, you know, doing stuff down in, um, you know, Honduras and uh, El Salvador. You saw that shift where we we're still doing our foreign internal defense. So we're still deploying regularly down there to different countries, you know, to train their military to get that stuff um, up and running. But you definitely saw a shift where, your ability to do things was greatly reduced where they're almost like squelching. Hey man, just stay within your little box, train these dudes. And that's, that's it. And it was like, all right, you know, that's, you know, kind of some politics there, but you know, it is what it is. Um, depending what country you're going to, depending who you're training, uh, you might have some interaction with the DEA because again, they were down there as well, trying to do this whole war on drugs, whether, you know, Bolivia was a prime one doing uh, crop eradication. And so now you're trying to train guys and um, get them up to par so they can actually go out there and try to fight these n- narco terrorists that were down there. So, I mean, it was just a different, different time, but we were constantly, I, I this is my one thing, like, like I regret not journaling to go, hey, how often were we going? How often was I in and out? I think I think our trips were about six weeks, six or eight weeks, if I remember right, somewhere right around there. 
Um, how often? Doing at least one a year, I would say. But were we doing more? I I don't know. Um, yeah. and were these because, were these troops combat related, or or were they just training the? No, uh, they, the host they were nation? either. Yeah, it was just training host nation. They were either dubbed, um, you know, either foreign internal defense or they were they were counter drug. But there was no. They did not want us getting involved with anything. So that was yep. where, you know, this whole kind of keep your distance. Don't get yourself tangled with any of these guys down there. Um, that was just kind of the USG policy at the time. So, yeah. And from what I understand, it's extremely dangerous down there um, in that drug world with the cartels and all that sort of stuff. It's, it's, it's quite sinister. <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, it's it's nothing like Mexico is today. Back then, I mean, you still had it. So again, depending where you were at, what country, they all, you know. So like, if you look at Colombia, you know. So yeah, you know, you had Pablo running around down there during that time, but you also had the FARC, you know, a narco terrorist group um, that had had engagements with the Colombian army, you know, that were successful in some of their engagements against these guys. So I mean, there was. Yes, there was different threats down there depending what country, um, you know, you're at. You had the Shining Path um, down in Peru. <clears throat> um, I think you had like the Cocaleros, they were called, if I remember right, in Bolivia. Um, I was down in Paraguay when they had a coup of the government. I mean, th- there's a bunch of different crap going on down there. So it, Put it this way, bad guys were active down there, you know, but could we do anything? Nope. USG or United States government did not want us intervening or getting involved. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, man. So that, that, I assume that that sort of defines that 90s period for you from 94 onwards, obviously until around September 11. Well, it does. Yeah. So you got to rewind the tape slightly. Uh, just prior to 9-11. So what ended up happening is the Special Forces Group started doing a program called the Special Forces Advanced Urban Combat Program or Urban Combat Course, not program. Um, the problem was the schoolhouse could not. They used to have a four week marksmanship CQB course that they would let guys go to. They did not have the capacity to train guys at that and then still do the eight-week Sephardic course to put guys in the sinks and extremist force or the four deployed kind of CT units. Um, so like, hey, man, you guys are instructors. Go teach yourself. So 7th Group really took the bull by the horns when it came to the Special Force Advanced Urban Combat course. Um, my team sergeant handpicked the guys he wanted. I mean, the, the group commander said, hey, pick the guys you want. I happen to be one of those guys that he picked. And... I think it was 98, um, 98, 99. We kicked that thing off and we started training ourselves in special force advanced urban combat. Um, again, where the journaling would be important. I don't remember when September 11th happened. I remember the day. I remember where I was. I remember all that. What I don't remember in as far as the advanced urban combat course program had we start our level two, 
So originally our initial program was a three-week program, just training individual teams. So you're doing individual skills and then obviously at the special forces ODA level. We got done that in 18 months and I think it was prior to 9-11. We're like, what are we going to do? Because the group commander was like, he didn't want it going away. He wanted the program to continue. So in essence, we had um, Safawak too. So we're like, hey, we'll bump it up to four weeks. Now we'll start training companies how to fight, you know, or ODAs how to fight at a company level. So a lot bigger assault force, if you want to say. Um, I personally believe that's what drove 7th Group into Afghanistan basically right after 5th Group because they realized, hey, language wasn't, they were using Terps anyway. So your language ability at that point didn't matter. So yes, we were all either Spanish or there was a handful of us that were Portuguese speakers as well. Um, that point language didn't matter. I believe, and I've yet to get this confirmed, but I believe that's why 7th Group was second in the hopper into Afghanistan. Now understand this. I was basically instructing at the Advanced Urban Combat Course that first group of guys that came back from Afghanistan. They're like, hey, man, that stuff you taught me saved my life. That set the hook in, I guess it would be 2002, that, hey, when I get out of the military, I am going to start a firearm training company. It wasn't I got out at 2017. It's like, well, I got to do something. Let me go start this business. No, the hook was set back then. Um, I think that's important for guys to understand for me that basically Warhog Tactical was established way back then. Um, long story short, um, I ended up having to leave the advanced urban combat committee. I had to go out to the schoolhouse. So basically I had to go work out at SFAS. So the selection portion, um, did that and then got out of there 2004, um, I go back operational over East Sock, and then I spend the rest of my time till 2017, basically going in and out of in and out of either Iraq or Afghanistan. Uh, with my last deployment being 2016. So yeah, that's a quick rundown. <laughs> Before I lose it from my memory, 2016 yep. deployment. Where was that? Iraq. Okay, cool. I was there at the same time. We probably uh, okay. Were you ever at uh, Al Assad? Um, last time I was at Al Assad was <clears throat> definitely '05 because we did a big push out west, um, and then in and out of Al Assad periodically throughout the time there. If my memory serves me right, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because we um, and, and I'll I want to get back to your career in a minute. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we we had seals were there. We, I think we had I think it was seal team ten, maybe mm-hmm. seven or something. Um, but um, yeah, we had a few uh, a few uh, bad boys from different units were cutting around mm-hmm. in different places as well. So I thought, oh, hmm, maybe. We had, could, we had a couple of little uh, SF stare offs at one point, you know, you know, not like a fucking we hate you way, but it was, you know, that little head nod sort of thing. So anyway, yeah, it, well, it, but here's the thing, right? Um, you got to think throughout the GWAT, you had some close company, um, as far as your different mates go. You know, obviously we had a very good um relationship with the UK. 
you know, good relationship with you guys, good relationship with the Kiwis, uh, good relationship with the Germans. You know, I mean, it, it, you kind of built these different things depending where you're at in country. Um, worked quite a bit, quite a bit with the Brits um, in Iraq, you know, but then you switch over to Afghanistan and just where we're kind of operating at, you know, you got some more stuff going on with the Germans, you know? So it was kind of like weird how you kind of splinter, go off and do things and then kind of at some point come back. It's all in a weave, you know, tangled mess somewhere, you know, it's like, yeah. The rich, rich tapestry of special operations. Oh yeah. Um, so just rewinding a little bit. So when Mm -hmm. you go from, and I want to make a bit of a distinction here between the two, different places so from seventh group over to usasoc mm-hmm. can you talk about that process yeah Even i mean there's a vague terms i know that there's a fair bit of you know those sort of different types of units yes there's it just you know within special operations command um you know you got to work through a whole nother you know selection process on that um you go through a whole nother training course so it's it's again you're always stepping the game up so again just you know if you want to say moving up the chain a little bit um get that stuff done and you know now you're right back getting operational after it and dude you kind of get done your stuff and the wheels never come off you're constantly going in and out of country um oh five was an interesting year because we pretty much spent the entire year there because i think if i remember right um Beginning of 05, I think that was the elections. So, of course, you're running all over Baghdad trying to make sure, um, you know, find your your ID guys and doing all that stuff so your elections can go off um, unhinged. And really, that's where first get the exposure to the dogs was during that time. And, yeah, they're there, but you really know – anything nope i'm not working this beast okay cool we got a dog out here you know figuring out how he all works and stuff like that but we had one night um and this was probably a pivotal point for me in just understanding the dogs kind of first intro to really i wasn't the handler um but to trust the dog and even with this canine documentary we're working on even the guys back from vietnam or even korea key thing there's a key takeaway, trust your dog. So we were out um, hitting this target one night. We had squirters come off and we're going after them. And just the way this thing was set up, the dog's telling us, hey, we need to go left. And of course you got the old eye in the sky telling you, hey, go right. And I think we went right, but he was really left and we did something and he went back over. And long story short, we circled back and got him. But that was my first point where it's like, you know, here's the handle going, no, man, he's down this way. And you've got an arbitrary third party telling you, no, you need to go over here. And long and behold, the dog was right. And that just set the hook right there to go, hmm, at least for me, not really understanding the dog and all the everything nuances with the dog going, yeah, there's something about this guy here. Um, and then there becomes this just repetitive story throughout the years up until I become a handler myself, here's the dog finding the guy that you don't know is there. Right. So you think you're going after two guys and next, you know, bam, dogs on the third, 
or you think you're just going after one. He finds the second one that's hiding in wait, or you think, hey, we're just running this thing and bam, he's on something. You know, it's this constant where you start realizing that the dog is the biggest combat multiplier in the battlefield. It's not all this technology. It's not all this other crap because check it out. He ain't got no nods. He's out there working that nose. And barring that you got him downwind, dude, he will save your ass every single time. So, you know, you see this repetitive deal and then, you know, 2010, I kind of get voluntold. Hey, man, we think it'd be a good idea if you go take the dog team over for your progression. I'm like, I I really don't want to do it, right? I don't want to leave the boys. I know that it's an additional duty. I see how much them guys have to work. At least I thought I did. I didn't see like, you know, them coming in on the weekends, cleaning kennels and all the, you know, before and after and all this crap that goes on. It's like, all right, yeah, we'll, we'll go do this thing, I guess. But it winds up being the best job ever. Because, you know, go do my handler stuff, get my dog, go back to work with the same guys that I was working with before. So nothing really changed with the exception of now I'm responsible for bringing the biggest combat multiplier to the battlefield. So before when it's just you, it's easy because I just got to worry about me. Now you've got to figure out how am I putting all this effort in to not only maintain my skills, but to also keep this little four-legged beast skills up. And oh, by the way, we did pretty good getting reports, you know, from guys that were four deployed. Hey, here's what we're seeing on the battlefield. Okay, cool. Here's what the enemy's doing. All right, cool. Well, now we got to set, you know, problems up so that his first look isn't there in combat. He's already seen the look before, hopefully, or as much as you can paint. So you got to put that much more effort where you're working that dog every single day. Then you sit there and go, well, I got a PT. Well, he's got a PT. Sorry, right, dude. I guess let's go for a run. Yep. Go run, put him up, go hit the weights. Bam. You know, so you, you figure out how to modify your schedule to work around him, but you have the biggest combat multiplier that you've got to ensure he's it, you know, at the peak of his game, just like you are. So if you're not putting the effort in, because it, if you're not putting the effort into this dog and he fails out there, dude, that could cost somebody their life. So, I mean, you've got to ensure that you're putting that effort forward and putting the best product forward for you and him. So, yeah. But when you get out to the battlefield, it's like you're kind of like this independent agent, right? You're not really reporting to anybody. You're kind of working the problem as you see it. You're positioning yourself to, hey, where it's most advantageous. You know the playbook because it's all the same guys you've been working with. And then when it's time, hey, employ the dog, run the dog, or, you know, how are you going to work things that you need to do with the dog? And it's just flows, man. Granted, it's more work, but the most rewarding work, in my opinion, you can have. Yeah. Yeah, interesting, man. Because yeah, you, uh, you guess all that extra work that you're doing, and then to, to then go and validate that overseas, and you know mm-hmm. you've just influenced this sentient being to then go and save your life. But um, I, I like the way you describe that about you know you've got that responsibility in your hands. You're like, mm-hmm. I'm responsible for this for the biggest 
force multiplier on the battlefield, the one that's going to tell yeah. me to go left when everyone else is telling me to go right, but the bad guy's really left. Yeah. Um, and that, mate, that's the theme that I sort of see a lot too when I ask people on this podcast or, or they detail these dog stories is, um, mm-hmm. mate, the dog will see things, smell things, do things that people just were not expecting and they'll find that that one guy or they'll smell that odour that, you know, all the other sensors and body cameras and UAVs and shit just don't pick up. So there's 100% something to be said about that capability, even just in that brief sort of interaction, you know, go left, not right. Yeah. But but it's the classic, he's finding things that you may not see. You know, you think, hey, I'm going after a bad guy. And okay, they're going, hey, He's over in this direction. We're kind of moving that way. But man, you see that change of behavior and bam, he just took the left to Albuquerque and he's on a dude. It's like, Whoa, <laughs> where'd this cat come from? Right? My man's laying in wait. And, you know, had he had the ability to see, he would have had us dead to rights. Right? And that's a common theme, whether it's outside the structure, you know, dudes hidey holing, you know, trying to hide somewhere and the dog's picking them up um, explosives, you know, floating around. It's like, there's a constant theme with these guys. And that's the part that guys don't get. And it gets to the point where the boys want that dog, get that dog up here. You know, who's the first one going in the building? Send the dog, you know? So he's going in, he's running his stuff, bring him back out. He's still coming up with the boys. Um, they wanted the dog so much. I mean, the boys basically stole my dog one night. <laughs> so, yeah, oh yeah, dude, we're out clearing clearing this compound. Get done, kind of the the uh, main target building, and I'm sitting there trying to recall my dog. Well, where the hell is he? I look at it, look at my monitor. This set of multicam pants next to him. You know, I said, hey, <laughs> who's got the dog? Oh, we got him. We're moving over here to this building little common courtesy i mean i don't mind you probably won't employ him for anything but my point being is just let me know you got him because again that's part of you that you're responsible for where is he you know is he in a ditch somewhere is he caught up somewhere i, I don't know no the boys just hey man we're taking him over here and what's he doing he's following him where are we going we got more work to do oh yeah doing? that's it man <laughs> Was was that Juco that you're talking about? Uh, no, it was actually. Uh, I don't think they stole. I think it was Marco, if I remember right. Yeah, or it might have been Duke. I don't, it, it was one of my two primaries I had. I. This is where it gets a little. Things start blurring, right? At what year was what? There's certain things I remember happened. Um, with me and Duke. I th- <sighs> It might have been Duke would have been the easier one. It might have been Duco. Cause he would have been the easier one out of the two to go kinda. Yeah. Um like Marco was a very Yeah. Marco I mean anyone could have grabbed Marco, but Marco was just a more edgier dog. Um although I did watch the boys one night try to put a boot, try to like help Marco and like put a boot on his ass to push him through this little tiny narrow breach point. And afterwards I was like, yeah, it's probably not the best 
uh, best course of action, man. Let him figure it out because uh, he may just sit there and go, I don't know what you're doing and I don't like it and just tag you. But he didn't. Um, but we just had a, you know, there was always those little dog training tip points where, you, you know, they're trying to do the best, right? They want to get him in there. He's struggling. Yeah, we'll just kind of help push him in there. You got away with this this time. Might not work out too well the next time. But yeah. Um, was that a yeah. was that a frustrating part of being and, and I want to circle back to some pre dog uh handling sure. deployments. Um because I know that period that that G Watt period for guys like yourself, mate, it would have just been a blur. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that's one of those stories could be Afghanistan, one could be Iraq, and maybe even you don't remember because that's how many fucking mm-hmm. jobs you would have done. Yeah. Um but did you ever used to get maybe not sick? Oh, maybe that's the word. Did you ever used to get fed up of either having to justify the dog to your hierarchy and then teaching team members how to handle the dog? I didn't try to justify the dog to the hierarchy. Um, There's only one case. As far as it, my organic level, they were all good. Um, We had one incident one night. We were going, we knew we were going to hit um a foreign fighter safe house we knew there were 10 cats in there and long story short we were doing other things than just going straight in because we know there's 10 dudes in there but you've got the jock however far they were away telling you send the dog well they still in there you know it's like no what am i getting by sending the dog nothing a dead dog right Mm. that i don't need later on or tomorrow whatever the boys weren't saying that but it was that you know um, the guys in the rear that my immediate command never had to sell them on nothing. They were very open to whatever. Um, just imagine, you know, educate if there was anything else you had to educate them on, but their guys were pretty savvy. I mean, the dogs have been around for a while. So you got to think most of these guys, they grew up, they were growing up around the dog. So it wasn't like you had to convince them, um, of anything. It might be just a refresher. Hey, Remember, if we're going to go chase after somebody, if we can preferably get downwind, if it's tactically feasible, let's try to do that, you know, or, hey, we might have to shift over here to get a better down the wind cone some, um, if it makes sense. Sometimes you can't do it. You know, I mean, terrain's going to dictate, you know, uh, enemy's going to dictate, weather's going to dictate all these different variables, um, but there wasn't any real selling of the command. And I'll be honest, I forgot your other question. You answered them both. I said I was talking okay. about the frustrations of, of maybe the command element um, and also yeah. that handling amongst the team. Oh, but, oh. I mean, imagine no, the, the handling. So here's the thing. I didn't expect anybody else to handle either one of my dogs. Um, what I What I try to do is just get what I dubbed an assistant, right? somebody that could at least know how to put his muzzle on and get him back on the bird. If something were to happen to me. Right. So if, if I got shot or blown up or whatever the case may be and the dog's okay, Hey man, just stick his muzzle on for your safety. Don't worry about trying to employ him and just, you know, make sure he comes back. So I'd try to earmark, you know, a couple different guys for that. Just so people, were familiar because again, you had some dudes that wanted nothing to do with that dog. Right. So whether they're past, they got mauled by a dog, allergic to dog, whatever. Right. They just didn't want to mess with the dog. 
Um, but those that were kind of, hey, more savvy and more in tuned, did I expect them to employ the dog? Nope. Hey, man, if something were to happen to me, just muzzle them up, just bring them back home. And then we'll, you know, the rest will shake out back in the rear. Yeah, sweet, man. Okay. So I'll just, I want to circle back to, um, and again, I know that you're not a chronological sort of dude, at least in this sort of podcast context. Um, so 2005 is your first deployment once you've, you've moved to a different sort of place. Um, and then f- essentially you're back and forth between Iraq, Afghanistan, multiple deployments to each location um, in that so, period. Yeah. So you got to think we pretty much stayed in Iraq um, 05 to 09. Yep. And then nine, nine was my last rotation. 10, I think the SOFA agreement with Iraq didn't get signed or something. So we pull out of Iraq and we shift over to Afghanistan. And then we're in Afghanistan till I think around 13. And then obviously somewhere right around there, ISIS kicks up and then we shift back over to Iraq. If my, my time serves me correctly. Yeah, it sounds about right, mate. Yeah, those time frames, yeah. the switching between the two campaigns. Yeah, um, but, it w- but it wasn't like, you know, we'd do a rotation in Iraq in the same time frame and then go to Afghanistan, then back to Iraq. We were pretty much campaign oh, okay. focused. Yeah, yeah. So it, was, it from 05 to 09, running all Iraq. Uh, 10 to 13, I think, was Afghanistan. And then 14, you know, at 16 being my last one, um, over to, uh, back to Iraq. Yeah. Okay. And, yeah. It sounds better. And right. here's, here's one key thing. So I, I got to add two points in here. Uh, first of note, when I left Iraq in 91, I told myself I would never, glad I never got to come back here. Joke, <laughs> joke was on this guy, right? <laughs> I, I was back the in Iraq the enemy, for- Rick, because uh, they're the ones that <laughs> paid the price. <laughs> Agreed, mate. But when you're back there for the 25th anniversary of uh, Desert Storm, you know, and you got some of these younger kids chuckling, going, pay attention there, boots. Learn some history here. And they're like, what do you know? It's like, yeah, I was there. Look, you might find my picture on there, you know, on the clips or whatever they were showing on TV. So just comical yeah. that. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, mate. So that, that 2005, 2009 period, and I, and I know I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure that deployments blend into each other and you can't probably tell yep. one job from the other. And I, don't, and I, I want to explain that context to some of the listeners, mm-hmm. particularly for the US military in that period, particularly for the special forces, like it would probably be hard for you to recall very specific incidences because like you just be doing it so much. And from what I've heard mm-hmm. from that period, it was just night after night after night, yep. banging jobs in, chasing bad guys, rest recover, mm-hmm. go and do it again. Um, so can you just sort of walk us through um, like the type of jobs you were doing? You don't have to go into the operational, you know, who you were chasing, that type of stuff, but like 
were you guys blowing in every night? Was it mainly helo jobs? Was it ground? So, so it all depended where you were at, right? So the target's going to kind of drive the train. Um, and we did every flavor. So you got to think, um, could you hit some targets? Like, let's say, for example, in Baghdad with helos. Yeah, you could. Um, you know, probably more taking little birds to the roof and stuff like that. Was it advantageous to try to rope in there and everything else? No. It, hey, drive vehicles in, you know, stop at a vehicle drop-off point and then move to your target building uh, quietly under the cover night. Because again, pretty much what's Iraq look like? It's all green. At least through your goggles, right? <laughs> um, but you might have, you know, so I would say, you know, Baghdad, um, there was some, you know, combined efforts doing, you know, helo ground stuff, but primarily, uh, driving in, um, obviously majority 99.9 stuff, you know, done at night. Yeah. I'd have sometimes you'd have to do some stuff during the day, uh, just when the target presented and, and go jump on that. Um, out West. Yeah. We did some more, you know, more helo stuff out there just because, you know, you start looking at, um, the vast remoteness, you know, especially using Al-Assad as like a staging place, you're not getting anywhere without somebody seeing you. So mm, yeah. helos are a better, helos are a better option to get, uh, to targets out there. Um, but you might go out knowing you've got in essence, four jobs one night, you know, so you're going to bang this target all right, cool. Do whatever it is there and slide over to another one. All right, do that one there. Uh, oh, you, or, you know, or it might be where, Hey, you're going out and something off that target drives you to another target, you know? So it, there was no set, anything set in stone, you know, you kind of just, you were constantly turn and burn. Um, I don't remember that much time off, you know, if anything, you got to think pros with helos. Yeah. They give you legs. Con with helos is weather drives a train. So, Hey man, all the dust storms and other stuff out there. If the pilots go, Hey, we don't have visibility. They can't fly. So then you got to think, all right, Hey, are we going to potentially pause things? Because now you don't have a medevac platform. Or you don't even have an infill platform where at least if I've got a vehicle, now I've got options. So I think the vehicle when conducive gives you better legs. Um, but you look over at Afghanistan as a prime example, didn't drive anywhere over there. Everything's flying over there. Right. So it's just mm. the, tr the terrain's going to drive the train, um, depending on what's going on. But yeah, it was just a constant, um, you know, three month burn, six months off, three months back. I mean, just that, that constant, just always going. And the actual jobs themselves, like, was were they pretty high tempo or was there, there were a lot of dry holes as well? Yeah, I mean, you had you had some dry holes. Um, again, depending how you're getting your information on that target, I mean, everything's going to kind of drive the train um, on that stuff. Um, a lot of times you'd catch guys, you know, snoozing. You got to think. Oh, dark 30 at night, man. Let's think about it. Most people sleep at night. Now, when you reverse cycle yourself and you're up all night, you know, you got the element of surprise, you know, they can't fight. 
sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes they, you know, they got their licky lose or they're prepped or, you know, yeah. And you're, you're running into stuff, but you try to, you know, use that element of surprise to your best advantage and set yourself up for success. And again, just depend on who you're going after. So if I'm going after, you know, uh, a facilitator, is a facilitator going to put up a fight? Not so much, but if he's got foreign fighters with him, yeah, they are. So it, it, it's just a, a mixed bag on who you're going after. You kind of had a rough idea. Hey man, is this going to be sporty or are we just going to, to snatch a dude? Yeah. And in terms of the actual combat, so when bullets were flying and, and uh, things were blowing up, is that, um, I mean, in my mind, I never did anything like that in Iraq, right? But in my mind, it'd be quite close quarters because of that, you know, very urban sort of terrain. Mm-hmm. Um, could you sort of walk us through that as much as you can? <clears throat> yeah, well, so to me, close quarters, I'm looking at some, if I dub something close quarters, we're in a room type deal, right? So if we're doing close quarters battle, hey man, maybe you're looking at 10, 12, maybe 20 feet. I mean, close proximity, right? So whatever size of a room is, that to me is your your close quarters. When you start looking at your urban environment, heck dude, I could get somebody um, that's up in the perch of a mosque that can see us better or has a better position on us than we really do on him, depending on how thing, you know, how the terrain's laid out. So he might be out there, you know, or on a rooftop or something like that, putting some fire down that necessarily you may or may not, depending where you're at, be able to get effective fire on there. Or maybe he's across the street, you know, as you're starting to approach a building. I mean, there's all kinds of variables to it. So to, to sit there and say to paint a picture, they're all, no two engagements are the same, right? So you might have, you might have that licky loo that's actually in the target building. You might have that, that guy that's in the courtyard. You might have the guy that's, you know, um, building over that you might have to go deal with him because he's putting, you know, fire down on you. So it, they're all, they're all different, mate. There's not to sit there and go combat's not a, you know, Hey, this is kind of it. There's so many variables to it. And sometimes they're just shooting. I think to shoot, right. Is it really effective? Yeah. They know there's something there. They don't have the technology like we do. Yeah. But I think there's something going on over there. Or maybe they heard, you know, the breach go off. So they're going to sit there and, all right, well, that woke up this guy. I don't know who it is, but I'm going to go get my jihad on and go shoot some rounds over that way. So they're all, they're all different. Yeah. And I mean, were you, how regular were those engagements? And what, what I mean by how regular were the engagements, I mean, like, I'm trying to think of a way to sort of put this without sounding like, Ugh, how many guys did you kill? Um <sighs> What was they, the frequency all, so, of getting these bad guys? They're all, mate, it's all different, right? Because again, um, you could have it where um, some places it was, you really didn't have it. You know, there wasn't a whole bunch of engagement because you're being more stealthful and these guys are kind of lazy. And then you had other places, you know, that these guys were prepped looking to fight that have their freaking, their guards up. You know, so it, there's no, put it this way. There was plenty of killing to be done, but it all varied. There's no two going out the door. No two targets were the same. If that makes sense. You may go out one night 
and have nothing. You might go on a streak where, hey, man, we didn't shoot a bullet all week. And then next, you know, the next week, man, it's a sporty week. So it it just, it all depends, you know. Um, I I don't don't know if that kind of paints the picture for you, but there was no set, no set deal, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And uh, in terms of like the mentality of of going out and doing that night after night, what what's that? Does that take a toll at all at that point, or are you just not thinking about it? You're just like, I'm here to do this, and I'm just going through the motions, and we're just mechanically delivering this, you know, if completing these missions and, and seeing these outcomes. Or is there time to stop and think and go, oh man, you know, I took a life, or, or I saw this, or this happened. So at least for me, what I did to the enemy doesn't bother me. Where my hinge point is, is the mates I lost and the mates I never got to mourn for until 13 years later. So my Achilles heel to all this um so my good buddy Joe Andres was killed December twenty fourth, two thousand five, in Iraq. Um, here's the thing: I don't know what happened for the next two three days. It's a blank. I know we had a memorial service. I had a buddy of mine said, "Hey, remember the the um, chapel service we did?" Nope, don't remember it. Don't know what happened Christmas Day. Do we even have a Christmas day? I doubt it. Right. Um, next day I remember is like the 27th. We rolled out and I remember the call coming on the radio. This is for Joe. But yeah, dude, I, I, I remember calling my wife. Whenever the phones got opened back up, I remember calling my wife. And having a hard time telling her what had happened. Couldn't get the words out that Joe was gone. And she kept going, what's wrong? You okay? I can remember that. But everything else... You know, I remember the, the memorial service, but that's my, um, those are my scars, right? And I hate the term PTS. And, you know, for the listeners, you can probably hear a little bit in my voice, the emotion. And, and I want to hit on this. The emotion's okay. The emotion's healthy. Um, I'm actually holding it together pretty good. Why? Because I've healed on Joe. Duke's really my, Duke goes my Achilles heel. Actually, they both are, but uh, there was a time and place that I'd try to divert from talking about Joe because it was that hard. Um, is it still raw? Is it still painful? Yep. Always will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. However, however, it's important for guys that have been in situations of loss, whether it's military, law enforcement, first responder, whatever, um, figure out a way to mourn. And emotions are okay. This old adage, oh, real men don't cry. Pfft. Dude, check it out. I boohoo like a baby. 
you don't think I can kick your teeth in if I warrant, you know, if somebody warrants some violence, oh, I will bring you violence like, like there doesn't need to be. Figure out a way that's going to heal for you. And here's the way you do it. Um, you do it by talking. Yeah, did I get, did I get super boohoo there? Nope. We got some emotions in there. That's okay. Um, the other thing is, do you guys do, um, I don't think you guys do like remembrance bracelets over there, do you? Like we do. Yeah. I, I used to okay. wear one. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. Like I've got Joe Andres on, um, not that I need a, a, a reminder of Joe, but it helps stem conversation, right? Because when I see somebody else that has one on, I go, who you got? Why? Because I want to know about whoever they've got on theirs because I want to keep the memory alive, right? So when it comes to Joe and what happened the evening of, like people always dig, what happened that night? It doesn't matter what happened that night, right? Know this, Joe's actions that night saved some dude's lives without a doubt, okay? Um, here's the thing, because nobody will remember the war story. Here's what people will remember. People will remember Joe Andres as the Baghdad Christmas cake thief. So to put 2005 in, oh yeah, uh, to put 2005 in, in, in a little bit of order here. So we were pretty much in Iraq that entire year. Um, around Christmas time, I started finding these little Debbie Christmas cakes in my boot, in my bed, in my kit. So back then they were packaged two to a time, but I would only find one of these things plugged wherever. Um, I literally caught Joe a couple hours for the pages went off for us to go out the door that it was him. I'm like, it's you. I said, I'm making me the arrest. I'm getting me the bad dad Christmas cake thief here. Right. Why do I share that memory? Why do I tell that story? Because as of, you know, a couple of weeks ago, when these things first came out on the market, I get messages, I get emails, I get texts from people. What do they send me? They send me pictures or they email me a box of these little Debbie Christmas cakes. Why is that important? Because that's what keeps Joe's memory alive. It's not about what happened that night. Whoopie dang, I tell you a war story. Great. How are you going to show me that you remember him? You know, oh, look at this clip from a movie. No, you're not. But every Christmas, those little Debbie Christmas cakes and then pictures come in. My mates in the UK, they're the best. They don't have Christmas cakes over there, but they'll take a picture of a fruitcake. And I go, I got it, man. I'll take it because I know what you're telling me. <laughs> I know, yeah. That, you know, but but the point being, that's my piece to keep Joe's memory alive, right? And here's the other part you don't get. You don't think the Andres family knows about that? Yeah, they do, because I'm still in contact with them. And you don't think I tell Joe's sister, you know, hey, go tell your mom and dad and the rest of the family. We haven't forgot about Joe. And here's all these pictures of these stupid little Debbie Christmas cakes. 
That's the key thing, right? It doesn't matter what happened that night. People are going to go, ah, whatever. They remember the Baghdad Christmas cake thief. And that's how we keep Joe's memory alive. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's good, man. That's a good wrap-up, dude, because, look, man, I, I, with this podcast, dude, I, I love I love hearing about people's operational stories and things that happen. Yeah. But, man, at the end of the day, like, the reason I do the podcast is to connect with other people in my community and mm-hmm. to tell stories and to keep memories alive because – Man, there's there's generations of soldiers and sailors and, and airmen out there that are forgotten from previous wars, you know. So yep. like this this that's the good oil the good oil, mate. That's the important stuff is little stories like that. The Christmas yeah. cakes, you know, and um yeah, mate and thank you, dude, for sharing that because it's not you know you you've got a million war stories, dude, and and But that's that's the important stuff that you share then, and, and, I, and I appreciate that, man. I really, really do. Yeah. But see, it, here's the thing, Tom, right? It, to me, the war stories don't matter in, in essence, right? Um, can I give you maybe some lessons learned? Here's what we did. Um, here's why the, the dogs are so valuable. Sure, right? You're going to skirt around stuff anyway because you don't want to give away TTPs or kind of tactics, uh, techniques and procedures. You know, hey, here's a broad brush. Are we really going to dig into these things? Not really, not in an open forum, right? Anyone can listen to this podcast. Do I want to sit there and necessarily tell people, hey, man, here's how we did whatever? Nope. Um, But when you tell the sidebar stories, that's the key thing, right? If you can engage with people, uh, especially when you see those remembers bracelets, you know, more bracelets, whatever you want to call them. Hey, man, who do you got? And it throws people off, right? They're like, huh? Because I show them mine. Who you got on your wrist? And it just starts that conversation. That to me, if I share nothing else, right? If you want to know all about my endeavors in in Iraq and Afghanistan, dude, I'll tell you about Joe every single time. And the thing is, you know, the the first time I got emotional um, was on camera. And and the beauty with, if you want to say in a public type deal, um, I did one other podcast that was kind of had some breaky voice in there. It wasn't super bad. But we could have very easily cut that footage and left it on the floor. And I told him to leave it. Because part of this whole thing is conveying to guys, am I emotional? Yep, I am. Do I have PTS? I don't like to dub it as PTS. Do I have some combat grief? Yeah, I do. You don't go all that time going to combat without getting some type of emotional baggage. My emotional baggage is this. It's not for the people killed in the battlefield, right? Care less. They're a bunch of savages. They got what they deserved. Mm. Um, my emotional baggage is for the mates that I, that I lost, the mates I never mourned for, whether they've got two legs, four legs, and what I did to my family. Because I basically crapped on my family. There were times that I should have came home, straight up lied to my wife. I don't know. They, they, they're not letting me go. And then I'm lying to the command going, now nah, she's good. She doesn't need me. Lying to both ends, Right. Why? Because I guess there's some sense of duty or some sense of whatever that, hey, I don't want anything to happen while I'm gone to the boys. You know, you want to talk about, you want to talk about stress. To me, it wasn't, wasn't so much the act of combat that was stressful. You want to know what's stressful is when somebody's wife tells you, Make sure he comes home. 
I'm like, wow. That's that's a hard pill to swallow on that one. That that's some stress. You know, the act of going out there and you know conducting different assaults, dude. That's easy. But man, make sure he comes home. So, just my two cents on that one. Yeah, it's yeah, buddy. That's good, mate. That's a good wrap, dude. Yeah, mate. Let's let's get into the dogs, dude. I want to get into the dogs. I want to hear about Marco. I want to hear about Duco. Um, but I'll I'll let you take it away, dude. Tell me about dogs. How you got into it? What it was like? Everything? Because the the first time that I and I'll just quickly caveat this: first time I ever saw you on the socials um, was um, and I I don't I couldn't tell if this was real time, so to speak, but it Mm -hmm. was the post where you had. You were next to your pool. You had Juco on the on the mat, and you were talking to the camera. And uh, oh, mate, you're getting me now. Fuck, you got you got me, bro. You were talking to the camera, and you were getting emotional, and now I'm getting emotional. And you were talking about Juco, and he was still there. He was still alive, yep. and I think you must have been putting him down that day. Yep. And uh, and that's the first time I ever saw you. Ah, fuck you, Rick. You got me, bro. That's all right. It's healthy. Uh, it's good. B- because here's the thing, Tom, right? You're getting emotional. You had no attachment to Duke. But what you have is that there's a canine attachment somewhere in there, right? And there's something you're telling me there's something you're still mourning or still dealing with, which is okay b- because we're all in a healing process, right? And my hat's off to you for getting emotional. Because it's key that other guys hear that. It's key that other guys go, whether you want to say you look up to me, do whatever, I, I don't care. Um, man, if he's willing to, if you want to say be vulnerable, why can't I? Why can't I find a mate to go talk to? You know, th- that's part of this whole thing. That's part of this healing process, right? Um, that video you're speaking of, Yeah. Man, it was it was actually hard to watch I, because um I I hadn't I didn't know you or or Juco from a bar of soap, mate, and uh and and I I cried when I watched it and I'd never first time I'd ever dealt with either of you ever, yeah and uh yeah mate you got me you got we, me right in the feels I tell you that much. Here's the thing I don't my times and dates and all my other stuff doesn't get good. Um, we filmed that about ten o'clock in the morning. I knew. By about four that afternoon, I wouldn't have him anymore. And that dog had grown and motivated people in ways that I never dreamt imaginable. Right? Not not on the battlefield, not what he did out there. Who knows how many of us, I mean, I'm one of them. I know for a fact I'm alive because of that dog. I know there's a bunch of other dudes alive because of that dog. Um, but when you know a piece of your soul is going to go, and I just try to keep people abreast the best I could. Um, yeah, we'll we'll circle back. We'll circle back. Um, on all that because I want to paint 
a little bit of a history, and then I really want to dig into Duco and what he's done, um, at least for me. So around 2010, um, I got voluntold, hey, man, we think it'd be good for you to go take the dog team for your progression. I said, all right, sounds like a plan. I said, really don't want to. But yeah, we'll go give this thing a shake. Um, go over to the kennels. Day one at the kennels. Welcome to being a dog handler, right? Bam, I catch a snap bite from this dog called Prince that I thought broke my freaking arm. I'm like, wow. All right, this is how we start, man. Uh, Prince was a relatively new dog we just had in. What did I know about? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, and I got the old, hey, man, stick this collar on him. Yeah, Roger that. Well, I guess he didn't like that. He opted to tell me. That. Bam. So, um, so picked up Marco. Marco was my first dog. Um, I was not, I was not a good handler or in the good mindset when I first went over there. Right. Um, in my mind, you know, Marco was a tool of war. Was he a dog? He was a tool we used, right? Train him, put him up. Bam. Was I really bonding with him per se? Did I treat him like a dog? Did I pet him? Belly rubs, all this other stuff. Nope. He is a weapon of war. This is the way, you know, bam, let's get him straight because he's going to save our lives and bring us back home. And one of my handles was like, hey, dude, treat him like a dog. And it was kind of a pivotal moment. All right. So, yeah, I mean, we we started bonding better, bonding more. Um, You know, started taking him more places, doing different things with him. But Marco was, uh, he was a Mally. He was a very edgy dog, right? Great combat assault dog. Um, Social was, eh, he, he was okay. But he was just edgy man he was just um that's the best best way i got for him did a did a great job um on the battlefield with him but i ended up losing him um in 2012 and we pick up um or i get i should say my float dog or our float dog which was duco and he's a duchy like man i said i don't want no duchy I said, give me any other Mally in the kennel. I said, just ain't got one. That's your dog. Damn. How wrong I was in that decision back then. Game changer, right? So, um, all right, we start working this dog. Yeah, Duke's got some issues, right? He's got some out issues. So we kind of fixed that. We changed his uh his Dutch over to German, fixed that. And and next you know, I'm starting to see this dog going, man. I like him a lot better than Marco. Uh, truth be told, his personality was better. You could watch his his shift from, yeah, would he still bark and stuff and and you know carry on in the kennel some? Yeah, he would. But there'd be times I'd crack that kennel door open. He's just sitting there, paws all crossed, just mm. chilling out. And you go to get him, and he knows. Boom! It's time to work. And to watch that switch go, bam! He was like, it's on, ready to go. And and by far, he was a lot better. Um, he was a lot better, cleaner, cleaner thinking dog, um, than Marco was. And it didn't take long. Um, Marco was proven overseas. I mean, it didn't take long for Duke to prove himself over there, man. Just God bless with that dog. I, I swear his, his crushing power was so much more than Marco's just 
or either that or he just hit all the right calcium deficient dudes. I, I don't know, man. Um, <laughs> God bless, man. He was just, he was just a wrecking machine. Um, you know, a couple big, couple big things from overseas, you know, there's the classic, Hey man, the dudes you don't see the guys, um, one dude that was hiding in this room under some stuff, you know, nobody else really saw him. All of a sudden Duke's like rat screwing at this thing. Bam. You know, hits the outlaw Josie Wales. I mean, it's just, that's the classic with these things. I hate just to go, Hey, here's Duco or Marco. It's across the board for the dogs. Right. Cause I'd seen it so many times and it's just like, here's these guys just repeating the same thing over and over again. Um, you know, a couple of things with Duke. Nobody ever teaches you or, or you don't do any. Had he been around, you know, close air support? Yeah, you know, he had mainly helo stuff. Never really dropped any bombs, danger close in training just to go, hey, what's the dog going to do? Um, we had a night we had to get some freaking some stuff dropped in danger close. I don't know what told me to to muzzle him, but I did. Thank God I did, man, because he came unglued. You know, it was just one of those where your spidey sense is going, I probably should muzzle this guy up. Yeah, man, he just, four or 500 pounders coming in danger close, man. He's just, um, but I mean, we had to do some stuff after that. And man, he just went out there and just crushed it, man. So um, we did end up falling. So a couple of things, you know, pivotal for me and him. So um, 2012, we ended up falling 30 feet out of a helo. Uh, and filling on target one night thought everything was good somehow pilots pulled power right at that point where you're stepping off and next you know i'm about 30 feet in the air at least that's what i'm guessing because about i'm guessing about the same distance for the uh 10 meter high dive board was about the same distance we went down so i'm gonna say it was about 30 feet uh i end up getting knocked out i got duke's his vest the one there right behind me is all twisted up in my fingers man um Finally come around, nods are knocked off. I've got a freaking tail rotor by my head. And it's like, dude, we got to crawl out of here. Cause I said, this Ooh. is the night I get killed by my own freaking helo. Right. Um, you know, get up, kind of brush myself off, get my nods on. No, no magazine in my rifle. I go to use this, you know, my support hand to go grab a magazine. It don't want to work. Okay. So get another magazine in there. We're all, get everything all set. We're moving up to the target building and there's these like little cave cutouts prior to us getting up to the compound. Of course, like, Hey man, go check that stuff out. Of course, it wasn't big enough for me to get a cover guy in there. So it's me and Duke. I got him on a long line. I got one hand that don't work I'm trying to work a long line under my arms. I'm just trying to hold my rifle and go, I guess we'll get shot in the face. Right. Cause I'm not in that coherent state. Cause I'm still dealing with this concussion going on. Um, get that knocked out, prosecute the target. Don't remember what happened on the target, you know, because again, concussive amnesia is kicking in. I just remember seeing Doc going, Hey, uh, I need to see you when we get back. Did I tell him I got knocked out? Nope. Why? Because that's going to get you benched. Just fix my hand and get me back in the fight. Um, dumb mistake that was on my part, right? Because fast forward. You know, I started noticing things falling off. Uh, I believe that that night was the pivotal point. They kind of put me in my TBIs um, over the edge. I think it was around 2015, 16. 
Duke, we were doing just a, a training exercise and, and sending Duke on the decoy and he couldn't jump in the back of a little pickup truck. It was like his muscles just froze. It wasn't like he didn't want to get the decoys. All of a sudden it's like, things just froze up and, and, and couldn't go. Um, could never really get that diagnosed, but kind of, I think it had something to do, uh, with that fall because I remember looking at his gate that night and he seemed to be walking all right and never had any dramas the rest of the trip there. But I think somewhere along the way, something happened with him on that one. Um, he'd always had the, the shaky back leg. That was just Duco and people go, what's wrong with his leg? That's just Duke. He just got the shaky rear leg. He had it beforehand. So it wasn't because of that. Um, but him not going, you know, being able to get that drive, that was kind of a, a pivotal point to go, all right, dude, you know, think our, well, I knew I was getting ready to retire there shortly. It was one of those that, all right, I guess our time is coming. Um, I remember, um, do you know who, uh, Armin Winkler is decoy over here in the U S ever heard of him? Yeah. Anyway, Armin's a pretty world renowned, you know, decoy. I remember we were working with him one time and, uh, this was post one of our trips there and, and Armin's doing some decoy work with him and Armin's like close fisting smacking duke in the head trying to get him off this bite and he's just driving in driving in he's like man you got your dog here i was like armin he's proven man i said we're just here going through some reps right i mean it's one of those that when you look at bite work you know i'm one of those that if they've got a solid bite yeah you need to reward them every once in a while but dude they've got that stuff down but it was just one of those you know where here you've got kind of a world-renowned decoy going man, you got one. I said, I know I do, brother. I've seen it firsthand what that dog will do, you know? Um, but the point being, I, I can't remember. I can't remember with Marco, but I know with Duco, for whatever reason, and maybe I I had the bond, you know, the tighter bond with Marco, or maybe just because of my, my early time with the handler, but I remember what Duke... <laughs> Every time I would cast him off, so like, especially if we were going to go do an area search or go clear a building, whatever, dude, I would always say, God, please bring him back. You know, there's just that, that attachment there of like, just bring this guy back to me. Um, he did, but it was just that bond that you build. And this is the part that people don't, unless you've handled a dog and I don't say this to be arrogant or disrespectful to other dog owners. But if you've handled a dog in combat, there's a bond that's built that is difficult to explain. And the best way that I can explain it is the time and effort that you've put into this dog. He becomes part of you. He's in essence, an extension of you. And it's almost like when you cast him off and I would say that, you know, God, please bring him back. It's like, Please bring back part of me. It's like me going out there, you know, him doing his deal. Now I got it. If I would have lost him, as long as I employed him correctly, that that's what he's there for. Don't get me wrong. Right. But you're his advocate. But I think those bonds that are built and solidified on the battlefield. Now, when you retire this guy, and he, you know, winds up having something like osteosarcoma. And yeah, you sit there and go, all right, what do we do? 
well, we're going to amputate that right rear leg. I, I got it's going to cost $10,000 in four rounds of chemo, but we're going to do it. And we're going to be constantly going to and from, you know, hospitals because we want to find the best one, you know, there's going and all this other stuff. Um, we do it because of that bond. And it's funny because with the canine documentary we're working on, this is how strong this bond is. We have got Korean War veterans, 70 years. We've got Vietnam veterans, 50 years. They had to leave their dogs in country. Leave them. That was the United States government's policy at that time as they were classified as equipment. Mm. They left them in either Korea or Vietnam. Those guys are still emotional to this day. Right? So when people ask, you know, we were talking earlier as far as the whole PTS and, and all this other stuff. It, it's the combat trauma, right? But it's the combat trauma post-conflict, in my case, of losing Duke. It's like losing a part of my soul that is gone. Part of me is gone when I lost him. Um, but it's just, you have to understand in loss we at least had some good came out of it. If you can say that I'd do anything to have him back, but we started the in on of Duco project. And when you look at the in on of Duco project, I'll tell you straight up when, when I was sitting there formulating this mission statement, I was selfish. Number one, I'm selfish by the name, the in on of Duco project, but it plays right into the, the first part of our mission statement. Uh, mission statement number one is to keep the memory of combat assault dog Duco alive. They say you die twice. Once when your physical body passes and second when your name's said for the last time. So that was, that was the key part. And that's in, that's in the mission statement, right? Mission statement number two is really the meat of what the Inano Duco project is. And that is to never let another SOF canine handler make a medical decision about their canine based on their finances. Because when Duke was, so first of all, the, to rewind the tape a little bit, right? Uh, 2020, I take Duke to the vet. Um, she's just a phenomenal vet. Um, he was kind of limping around. I'm like, ah, you know, he was kind of chasing, chasing the other dogs around the house, kind of slipped, fell on the hardwood floors, just figured he kind of tweaked something, right? She goes there, starts feeling on his leg. Now, here's the deal, man. I've had this dog since 2012. I am intimately know this dog, right? I was there when he had prior surgeries, dentals, had him on the battlefield. I know this dog. And she starts feeling that right rear leg. And she's like, I think he's got osteosacoma. I'm like, he got, huh? She's like, I think it's bone cancer, but I don't want to say, and I'm, dude, you say that C word, man. You're just like, Boof. Mm. you, you kind of get to that blackout stage, right? What? The very beast that brought me home from the battlefield. I'm alive because of this dog. You're telling me he now has cancer. All right. What do we have to do? So of course we get, um, get him down to a clinic. And, and again, I, I've, I'm transparent in this whole thing. I'm transparent because 
I sit there and ask for a prayer request. I'm like, guys, something's up with Duke. Need your prayers. Um, you know, we go get the biopsy done. Yep. Confirmed. He's got osteoscoma. I said, here's the thing. Good news. It's only in his right rear leg. We can add longevity to his life if we take that right rear leg. And then we'll do four rounds of chemotherapy to ensure anything else left in his body is done. Okay. But I think somewhere in there, I forget the point where they plug in, of course, it's going to be $10,000, right? Like we all got 10K just sitting in our pocket ready to burn. Wow. Okay. I could have taken the $150 option. Wasn't going to happen, right? Okay, dude. We're going to take care of you, buddy. Well, this is all during China virus time. So you got to think, I had never been separated from this dog during any, any medical procedure, right? When he had his um, his gastropexy, so that's basically when we staple his stomach to the inside chest wall so he doesn't get bloat or, or minimizes bloat. There for that, right? Innovated this dog. I mean, I've done everything with this dog. And here I am going to hand off a leash to some people that I don't have the utmost. Like, you don't know what you're doing. Luckily, Duke's a very social dog, but it's like, dude, I'm sitting there going, all right. Anytime he's woken up from anesthesia, who's he always seen? This guy right here. Now he's got nothing, right? Finally get him, you know, repatriated. Of course, I'm I'm putting all this stuff out on social. Why? Just because I want people to know, right? It's this whole education process. Talk about osteoscoma. Let's talk about these dogs. You know, the very dog that, that I'm alive because of him. Let's just let people know what's going on. Um, get the four rounds of chemo done, you know, go back first check. Boom. Everything's good. Right. No cancers found. Um, fast forward. I think we go it was around April timeframe. I think we get, um, he has to go get a dental done. We get a chest x-ray since he's kind of sedated anyway. Everything looks good. You know, within a couple months, man. Um, again, he was he was starting to have some some issues. Thinking, all right, man, dog's only got three legs, probably tweak something. And um go to take him to the vet. Really couldn't find a whole bunch. I mean, he did have a little uh little edema going on that I now realize what that was. Um, but she's like, Hey, let's let's go take a an x ray since he's here. Takes an x-ray and spots her back. All right. What's our next step? It's like, hey, let's make some calls and figure it out. Tom, with literally within a week. The cancer came back. So hard and so fast. What was happening was that edema was a sidebar of his cells breaking down and fluid collecting in his body. Pretty much the last 
I think three or four days that I had him, he couldn't walk. And we pulled that last blood test. Um, I think it was on like Thursday or Friday. It, it, she's like, his cells, he just, his body's breaking down. His cells are just exploding. Okay. We opt that. July 5th will be the day. Why July 5th? Yeah, we could have done it beforehand, but I was like, I want to give him one more Independence Day on this planet. Yes, he was Dutch born, but he wore the Stars and Stripes and fought for the U.S. So let's give him that respect of one more Independence Day. July 5th, you know, shoot that video you were talking about. Short of me saying this is our last video, I just had to put it out there. Because I knew later that day, that I would have to tell the world that the very dog that saved my life and a part of my soul was gone. You know, he was surrounded by, you know, his family, you know, my wife, my kids, grandbaby, all there. (laughs) And when we carried him out of the house um, to go take him to the funeral home, he was covered in the flag that I had on my kit every rotation. <laughs> so you sit there with all this pain, hurt, from the very dog that saved your life. And somewhere along the way, a nonprofit named Scott's Wish, we somehow get partnered up with them. I come up with this selfish brainstorm. I don't want anyone else to have to go through this, you know, this financial heartache um, like I had to do. So what do we do? Approach them and say, hey, what do you think about this in our Duca project? Because at that time, Scott's Wish was helping both, you know, human and pets. So it just, it, it already kind of fit their wheelhouse. And yeah, Denise was on board and absolutely. So we started, you know, the In Honor of Duco project. And we started writing the mission statement. Yeah. Selfish is obviously named Duco. We're going to keep his name going. But, you know, it's giving back to that canine community um, numerous different ways, you know. So my point being, is, you know, during our journey of his amputation, you know, again, using social for what it is, um, people were inspired by Duke. Like, you've got this three-legged dog. You're out there walking him. You know, he's getting after it. Of course he's going to get after it. 
Because the things this dog will do, man, that, that dog has more drive than you can shake a stick at. Did he have a place on my couch? Of course he did. Did he have a place on my bed? Of course he did. He earned it. He had a place wherever he wanted. Um, but my point being is with the, with the loss, we find a way to, to one, keep his memory alive to help out other people and just ensure that share the story of Duco and just the incredible dog he was. Um, if I had the ability to clone that dog and outfit anyone that had a working dog with Duke, God bless man. It would be absolutely incredible because he was just, he was the gold standard man. Did he have some flaws? Yeah, he had some. Um, but once we kind of cleaned up that out, you know, from whatever the Dutch, I think the Dutch were just double leashing him over in Holland. But once we cleaned that out, man, he was, he was just phenomenal personality, just phenomenal beast in the battlefield. Um, of all the different dogs that I worked by far, the gold standard, uh, looking at my peers and some of the train wrecks they had again, gold <laughs> standard, but oh yeah. Um, but no, dude, it's just, yeah. So, um, but that's it. I mean, Duke's Duke's my Achilles heel. Um, for all my other handlers out there, if you guys have, have lost dogs, you know, you got to talk about it. You got to share their stories. Um, it's cool to share what they did on the battlefield, but it's like, there's so much more to it. And people will probably remember Duke not having four legs. They'll probably remember, you know, the tripod that I got. Um, and it really just amazes me how that dog inspired other human beings, you know, to get up, to be motivated, to do stuff. So, yeah, buddy. And, and then the other part I got to add, the outcrying, the support I received when I lost Duco. You don't realize, you know, I'm not a super fan of social. Uh, I think for the most part, it's it's toxic, manipulative. Uh, it's propaganda. Um, but the support I got, because that's pretty much how we communicated with people. So if you look at my hat. So this here, uh, that's Blackbeard's friend. Duco. Um, so Rich, who has explosive apparel design, uh, or explosive design apparel, sorry, I always messed it up over in the UK. He was in the process of working this design um when I lost Duke. So it was just gonna be Blackbeard's friend or Blackbeard's best friend. He goes, Hey, what do you think about me calling to Duco? I'm like, Yeah, dude, I'm game one hundred percent. Um that one right there, you know, Ricky Harris design did that war dog duco bone. Uh, my buddy Jason and uh, his canine, Sonny, who's up in Connecticut PD, you know, the flag with duco on it. Uh, Taconic Distillery out of New York. You know, we've got bourbon with, you know, duco labels on there. And we took it a step further where now it says uh, in honor of duco. Um, on there, but just all this outpouring, this support, um, you know, for Duke, I mean, that's really, that to me is mission success, right? That's keeping his memory alive. Um, and then in turn, you know, you got people donating back, um, you know, to the non Duco project and that's how we, you know, we give back to the community. So that's just a, 
Yeah. I think I kind of went on a sidebar tangent, but it's all good. <laughs> Excuse me. Nah, mate. None of this is sidebar stuff, dude. It's it's all your story. And um, yeah, like it's 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 very evident that Juco's had a massive impact on your life, dude. So I want to hear all about it, man. So um, yeah. Again, man, thanks for sharing that sort of stuff too because, um, yeah, man, that the bond that you – I mean, I, I never deployed with my canines so, and, and, mm-hmm. and I still have a pretty strong bond, you know what I mean? So, um, yeah, it's uh, – thanks, man, for sharing that. That was interesting to hear, yeah. bro. Very interesting. But, it, but here's the thing, Tom, right? And I think – like I said, we're working on this canine documentary and if anyone wants to check it out, um, it's war dog series with an S on the end.com. Um, but to watch these guys 70, 50 years removed from dogs, they never could bring back home. The emotion's still there, man. It's raw. Like it was, you know, today. And, and that's the key part. I think people need to understand is the bonds we build with these guys. People don't get it right. It, it, it's, the best way I, I've had to describe it, it's like it's part of you. This dog becomes part of you in this crazy kind of world that you're living in. Um, but here's the thing, man. I wouldn't change it for nothing. I wouldn't change that experience for anything. Would I like to have him back? Yeah, I, I would love to have him back. Um, there'll only be one, right? It's kind of cool because you'll see some other – I've seen some other police agencies have dogs named Duco, and I'm like, yeah, that's cool. And we even <laughs> outfitted a couple – yeah, we even outfitted a couple uh, canine officers weren't named Duco, but um, with uh, ballistic vests, but they've got Dukes. So that very picture up there that Allie Rains did, um, that's kind of our – that side profile pic of Duke, you know, that's embroidered in their vests. And it's funny because he's kind of looking at their six. So it's almost like, hey, you got Duke watching your six. Um, but yeah, it's just incredible dog and just trying to to pay it forward, um, tell a story and just keep that memory alive. And uh, watch out, brother, because I'm going to tell you, there's there's bigger things on the horizon. I'm not going to let the cat out of the bag yet. <laughs> um, that was one next question, yeah. mate. What's, what's going on in the future, dude? Like, what's... Um... Canine documentary is the big thing right now. Yep. Um, obviously, we launched our um, the start of our canine product line. Um, so, the, in honor of Duco Loop Leash, kind of we uh, it was basically designed over in Afghanistan. Um, obviously, when you're running, um, you know, when you're running tube nylon, and you've got either wet nylon, wet gloves doesn't really want to hold that good or if you're hauling your dog up and down. So in essence, with the with the loop leash, it's got loops built in there. So now I've actually got purchase points uh, along the way. And then to boot, it's designed in a way that, I don't know if you guys ran a lanyard system for your dog or if you're always running. Okay. So in essence, this is an improvised lanyard system where now I can wrap it around my waist and we've got these intermediate points where now I can actually attach a carabiner size of your choosing. So now I've got a loop that kind of goes around your waist so I can go hands-free if I want to. And then of course, um, you know, on the tag we put in honor of Duco on there. 
So that was kind of our last, uh, our last deal. And we launched, um, a year to the date that I lost them. So it just seemed fitting that we did that. So that's the, the start of our, um, you know, canine product line. Uh, we got some other things in the works. Hopefully get start to get released in here shortly. But, um, the documentary is the big one right now. It's trying to capture from World War One up to present day just the histories of military working dogs, uh, at least in the military. And it's been really cool talking to Vietnam vets and really digging in to what happened with those guys and understanding that we had over 4,000 4, dogs deployed to Vietnam. Only 209 came back to the States. Ooh. 209. Yep. And it wasn't because they were all killed, right? They were classified as equipment and towards the end of the war, uh, they were either turned over to the South Vietnamese or, or euthanized. So that's where we used to do it back in the day. Um, on that, you got to think, so uh, Robbie's Law was passed uh, 2000. Uh, we used to euthanize military working dogs up until 2000. And then we had to pass legislation that we were no longer going to euthanize them. So that's how I was able wow. to bring... Yeah, Duke at home was via legislation. So, yeah, yeah, that's so that's unfortunate, kind of a, mate. That that was the SOP was just ah, just kill them. They're just a piece of kit. Blue, blue juice, man. Yeah, it's like the dog that very saved your life. Blue juice, it's like God bless you, savages. So, yeah, yeah, and I, mate, I always drew the comparison between us and the dogs, and said that the dogs were just. The way that they thought about the dogs and treated them was just a metaphor for the way they treated and thought about the operators. Mm-hmm. So I think that's Duke, uh, that's Duke was treated. He would, Duke was treated very well, right? Um, well, I mean, from sleep- uh, the hierarchy. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. But but I'm saying, like, from my perspective, right? Um, one could argue I'd spoil the dog. Well, I figure if I slept on a Tempur-Pedic, he should sleep on a Tempur-Pedic, right? He should get a good <laughs> night's rest. Um. You know, now granted, I would sit there and supplement his chow if he had a, if we had a good night. Yeah, man, we'd go hit the chow hall and bring him back some goodies to go. Yeah, buddy. Um, you know, here's a little extra chow for a job well done. You know, if we're sitting there doing a barbecue and maybe brewed up some steaks or something. Yeah, buddy, you get your own. I mean, it's just <laughs> guys would, this is how much they love the dog, right? Guys would sit there and have care packages sent from back home. They would have, you know, peanut butter and, and little milk bones and i'd catch these dudes freaking um chumming my dog man it's like what are you doing so but yeah but no it's just you know that that's how much and, and people still have an impact today um people still remember to you know i i got guys i used to work with that still chat to and hey you remember the night he did bowl it's like yep i mean it's like yeah so we'll still keep uh keep telling the stories and keep his memory alive and yeah, buddy. Yeah, good man. And I mean, I think you're doing a good job too. I think you've definitely achieved some mission success, mate. Because for me, a guy that didn't know you, um, and you know, come across that video of of you, um, mm-hmm. and then now you're on the podcast. So you, you're doing it, mate. You're doing it every day, and you're, and you're doing it <laughs> life, mate, so. <laughs> Yeah, I I appreciate it. I mean, Tom, honestly, um, you know, it's it's been it's been interesting. Still keeping that momentum, keep his keep his memory alive. Yeah. Um, but that's what that's what we're gonna do. And like I said, the outcrying of support. Um oh I forgot to mention we had um 
we had another guy. Um, he had his softball team shirts made in honor Duco. So it's got a big picture of Duke on the back. Um, it, it's just been, it, it, the outpouring has been incredible. So, yeah. Yeah. That's so good, man. You're doing some yeah. good work, bro. Um, Appreciate hey, it, bro. Rick, man, I'll, uh, I'm going to let you get back to your fan band, bro, because it's, uh, what time is it there, mate? It's about 5.30? Yeah, yeah it's almost almost 6 p.m. Yeah. I got I got I got a couple more things if 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 you're if you've got a role, tell me, but I got a couple more things for guys. If I own my it. own business, mate. I can do whatever I want. So go <laughs> See? for it, bro. Bang it. Bam. Uh, th- thank you, buddy. You hit a nail on the head, right? Entrepreneurship. So any of you guys listening, uh, and I always go military law enforcement, and you're retiring, transitioning, go be an entrepreneur, right? You will work twenty times harder than you did it you know, whatever job you did before, but the job satisfaction is absolutely phenomenal. Um, on that note, a couple things. Don't be defined by your job or your title or whatever it is that you do. Check it out. I am Rick Hogg. I am the owner of, owner president of Warhog Tactical, right? I'm not defined by my past. I'm not defined by my job. If you remember kind of before, 2001, I knew, hey man, I'm going to start a firearms training company. This is my passion. This is my love. This is my why. And I think it's important for guys when you're getting close to that retirement point or transition point, if you're just doing a short stint, getting out, what is your purpose? What is your why? What gets you up in the morning? What motivates you? And to me, it's yes, running a firearms training company. But it's also doing my, you know, my canine stuff. It's also doing this documentary. It's also doing, um, you know, nonprofit stuff. It's all, this all drives me. I don't wake up in the morning going, oh man, I got to go see that boss. You know why? Because I see that bright, shiny boss when I look in the mirror and go, hey buddy, what are we doing today? (laughs) It's like, man, let's go get this thing knocked out. But I just, I think it's important for guys. I have always been. Rick Hogg, right? I'm not defined by my past. Yes, I can learn from my past. My past can shape, help develop, whatever you want to say, but that is not, that is the past chapter, right? That, that chapter of the book within the Warhog saga has been written. Now, boom, we're on the next chapter, you know? And if you want to say we're continuing to write new chapters, if you want to say a, a chapter closed when I lost Duke, right? We're, we're picking up writing from there. Um, but my point being is I just, for the transitioning, uh, and I say, you know, law enforcement well, because I don't know about you guys over there, but I know for us, although I did work with some, uh, uh, a couple coppers from Queenlands that was over uh, for the American Tactical Canine Association uh, this year. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Well, uh, mate, they, those two dudes are uh, mates of mine. They're, uh, are they? Yeah, okay. we're actually gonna, we're going to catch up pretty soon. I won't say the names on here, but um, we're going to catch no, no. up pretty soon and, and do a big debrief, mate. Um, okay. Because then myself and uh, uh, another ex-copper mm-hmm. who also, was also a doggy, we're heading, I think I told you already, we're heading over to SHOT Show in Jan, doing a bit of a tour around. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, that's that, that's my segue I- into my own <laughs> trip. But, um, yeah, Sh- those two shameless- I know. Shameless plug. I like it. 
I'll see you at shot. I'll, I'll be at shot for, um, I won't be there for the whole thing. I'll be there for a little bit. So yeah, hit me up. Yeah. Perfect, um, but, but my point being is, is I say law enforcement because we've got, you know, everyone pushes the, the uh, military suicide here in the U S but it's also happened to the law enforcement community. And I personally believe it's because these guys are defined by their job. Now, when they get out, what's their purpose? And no one's kind of prepping them to think about, Hey man, what's your purpose in this next step of life? So if you can figure out your purpose, I don't care if it's underwater basket weaving, right? What wakes you up in the morning? I mean, honestly, what wakes you up in the morning? Find that why, and then go after it and, you know, get some people that's in the space to help you out. What I know about running a business, nothing. What I know about social, nothing, but you figure it out. That's what we do. So, you know, I sit there and go, Hey, our mantra is 1% better every day. I'm just not paying lip service to it. Right. I mean, it's so much so that we ended up writing a book about it. So granted it's the, the firearms training notebook. Um, but it says, be 1% better every day. That's, that's in the title. And that's what guys need to do is how do you just make an incremental improvement, whether you're still serving or getting ready to retire or getting out or running your business, just a little better, man. Because if you think about it, guys go, uh, I'm not saying don't have goals, right? Goals are important, but you also need to write down your goals because if you just say your goals, if, you know, I, I love to use the weight loss one. Cause that's always the classic one. People, Oh, I need to lose 20 pounds. I don't personally, right? But there's other people saying, I need to lose 20 pounds. Well, show me where you wrote it down. Well, because then you can change your goal. Well, took a big dump today and lost three ounces. Okay, there's my weight loss. No, dude. You know, hold, hold yourself accountable. Because what might happen is you might sit there and go, bam, I knocked out my 20. But you know what? I'm on a roll here. We can just cross out the 20. Let's go. I want to do 30. Let's shoot for that next 10 or that next one, however you want to do it. Right. But you have to have accountability, um, in your life. And that was one of the things that we saw deficiency, at least for the, uh, law enforcement community here and somewhat for the military, nobody had a notebook, how they were sitting there, um, annotating their stuff, you know? So that's where the, the firearm training notebook came in and we just developed it where guys can be better. So, Take that same aspect of being 1% better, apply it to your life, you know, but have that purpose and drive when it's time to, um, you know, get out of the military, make sure you've got that and dude, then it's full steam ahead, you know, knock out your passion. Hey, if you got to do a slight pivot, did I think getting out of the military, I would be doing nonprofit stuff. Nope. Did I think I would lose Duke? Eh, I probably knew at some point, but I didn't want to tell myself that. Right. Did I think I'd do a, a, Canine product line, eh, we'd kind of kick the can around. What do I know about U.S. manufacturing? Yeah, because it had to be made here in the USA. That was one of my stipulations. Uh, so, of course, we had to figure stuff out there. Um, what do I know about podcasting? You know, I mean, the list goes on and on, all the things you figure out. But, yeah, you figure it out. And then you just make yourself a little better, a little better, a little better. Um, what do I know about freaking, you know, website design? Nothing. But we figured it out. You know, e-commerce platform, that would be Warhog, two Gs, W-A-R-H-O-G-G.com. <laughs> See, it's all about the shameless plugs, right? Um, but no, my, my point being is, guys, don't be defined by your past. That chapter's been written. 
start going, hey, what am I writing for this new chapter? So, and then the other part was, yeah, this was an emotional podcast. It's okay because it makes me no less of a man, no less of a warrior, alpha, whatever word you want to use. Trust me, if I need to use violence, I can still use violence to defend myself, defend my family against the ugliness that's out there. So don't think that will stop you. It's part of the healing process, which just makes us better. You're talking my language, Rick. That's um, mate, that's an epic wrap-up. And I think that what I want to do from now on is I'll ask a question like that at the end of podcasts. I'll go, hey, what's what's something that's helped you move on, transition, get over trauma, be mm-hmm. better at your job, be better at life? What's the maybe, – maybe what's the 1% better tip that you've got or something that you do to be 1% yeah. better. So um, that's now going to be a permanent question. No, that's what, yes. What, what we asked Tom is, is we ask, especially for my veterans, right? Cause that's, that's the, the key part. If you had one piece of advice to give a transitioning service member, what would it be? And you hear all kinds of stuff. So, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll answer that question now because I think you've basically touched it and summarized it pretty well. So I'm just going to mm-hmm. stomp on your one and <laughs> yeah. ruin, ruin all your hard work. But um, no, no. The, the thing I say is I, I say take responsibility oh, – sorry, take ownership without blame or punishment. So mm-hmm. you, it, it's 100% on you, right? The military, mm-hmm. uh, you guys would call it the VA, we call it DVA. Like the, those two organizations aren't necessarily going to help you. No. They're probably going to hinder you. So it's on you to do it yourself. They're going to poison you, at least here in the U.S., right? Um, The VA is going to try to pump you with pills. You don't need pills. You know, I was an inpatient um, prior to getting out uh, out of the service when I was on active duty. I was six weeks inpatient trying to get my brain fixed. That's how bad my head was, right? You want to talk about scrambled eggs? I had my head, the TBIs I have, rubbish, dude. Guys I'd known, you know, 10, 15 years. What's your name? Everyone was, hey, pal. Hey, buddy. Hey, man. Because I can't remember people's names, right? Um, what was the first thing I told them going in there? No pills. Pain management. Hey, you need a, a script refill? What part of no pills, you know, um, no pills don't you get? Wait, oh, by the way, I fi- <laughs> Yeah. So check it out. I fired him. Hey, dude, I don't need you. Be gone with you. Oh, you can fire your doc. You know, I don't know about you guys over there, but I'm telling you this. If that doc sits there and hands you pills, tell him to go pound sand and beat it because that's easy medicine. Honestly, I said, I will do whatever holistic thing you want. You want to rub chicken bones together? I'm game. I'll try it. I said, I don't want big pharma in me. That's just me, you know, Um, but that's a a sidebar rant because I'm not a fan of the Veterans Administration here in the U.S., right? Why are you going to give me pills? My sleep doc. Well, hey, man, we're going to give you some gabapentin to reset your brain. Hey, isn't that an anti-seizure medicine? My brain's already jacked up. I don't want no more crap in there messing up what little I've got. You're fired. Beat it. Guess I'll sleep like crap, right? But my point being, when you start looking at all this, it's all pain and everything else. But there's things you can re- rehabilitate TBI. You can do it. The key part is you got to engage your brain. The key part is you got to exercise. Key part is you got to eat right. You start doing that stuff. Yeah, I'm a big fan of MCT. You know, you do your omega threes, all your other stuff, but you got to exercise as well. 
exercise your physical body, exercise your brain. And you start doing that, you can you can rehabilitate. Because trust me, dude, I, I 29 years, I left out of there. Basically, my body stuck in um, in a meat grinder. And that's all you got was, you know, sure to be for the end, man. It's like rubbish, trashed. But you can rehabilitate from it. So if you're in that bad spot, guys, you can you can get your brain straight. Dude, have you ever linked up with Will Chesney or um, Evan Nolte from Den Mother Canine? I know them both. Yeah, um, obviously both TBI as well. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I'm sure they've probably you've probably had some interesting conversations with them. But um, I'll leave that one there. But um, mate, anything else you want you want you want to get out before we wrap it up, mate? Um, I think that's it. You know, um, yeah, I just, I will tell you this for, you probably have a bigger listener base in Australia. Uh, love you guys been out that way. Uh, hopefully come back. It's a rough plane ride. I ain't going to lie. Uh, it'll about crush your soul. I think me, think it took me about three days to get my cycle back in order there, but, um, running Jacob's ladder over there in Perth at, uh, you know, one, two o'clock in the morning will not reset your clock. So I tried it. <laughs> Trust me, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's a great it's a great PT session. So done, easy, bro. But yeah, hey, like- Rick, um, mate, I uh, you know, as a small business owner myself, time is your most valuable asset. Um, so mm-hmm. I appreciate the fact that you've given me some of your time, mate. Um, and tell me your story and um and and show some of yourself, dude. Um, yeah. And, and and show that vulnerable side, but also keeping Juco's memory alive, which is obviously a massive thing for you. So I very mm-hmm. much appreciate it, man. And I'm going to let you get back to your family now, brother. You're very welcome, brother. Yeah, I appreciate you having me on and uh, look forward to having you on the Range Podcast. Oh, mate, pumped. And I want to see you at Shot Show too. Yeah, I'll be there. Absolutely. All right. See you, my man. All right. Take care, mate.